All right, take two. <laughs> Welcome to the A Space Podcast. We talk about everything from favorite alcohol to why you should care about string theory. It's the one-eyed gambler and Nimbus here. Uh, you can catch us on Stitcher, the Google Play app, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spotify, and hopefully one day everywhere else you can get your podcast thing shows. <laughs> if you'd like to donate, <laughs> if you'd like to donate, you can donate at cash sign a space podcast. If you'd like to donate to the podcast. And you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and you can email us at aspacepodcast at gmail.com. What's up? Not much, man. Chilling. <laughs> Trying to keep that head above water. Yeah, like Most other people. Yeah. Uh, I, had, I was uh, reading up on some interesting shit that uh, went down uh, in the last couple weeks. You know, we've had some crazy stuff come out. Um. As far as news goes... Oh, like the Earth was flat? Oh, jeez, look out. Look out. <laughs> Wait, can I still jump? No, I'm a white guy. I can't jump. It's all good. I'm good at other things. Anyways, no, so... Um, CNN got ball-busted for uh, suppressing um, Tulsi Gabbard's time, suppressing what she was saying... There was the whole fiasco with Hillary Clinton getting ready to jump into the race because Trump was like, bring it on, I'll kick your ass again, that's cool. Um, which is obviously not what he said, but it point essentially is like, all right, you want to go for round two? He's ready to lay it down again, which is hilarious. Yeah. This is almost as good as when he and Joe Biden were supposed to have a fight. Yeah. Which I still would pay money to see. Okay. Yeah. My money's. Probably on Joe Biden, though. <laughs> no, honestly. Anyway. Well, I'm really looking forward to a, 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 a primary race between Tulsi Gabbard and Hillary Clinton. You know what I think would be freaking phenomenal? They would just, like, kick everybody else out of the goddamn water. Whatever. If Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard came out and announced their duo ticket ahead of everybody in the primary. Yeah. And they were like, win or lose, it's going to be us. Yeah. Like, screw y'all. Because if they did that, that'd be such a power move forward that people would be like, what makes you think you're going to win? And then the whole conversation would just shift to the future. Yeah. And it would get off the gimmicky stagecraft bullshit. Um, Do you honestly think Tulsi Gabbard would choose Andrew Yang as a second, though? Like absolutely. Yeah, no, I think, I think if, either, if they announced a duo ticket and then they had to go toe-to-toe, right, in the primary, regardless of who wins... If I'm Yang, I go, all right, I need somebody who's got the experience, re- recent relevant experience in the most recent style of wars, in the insurgency wars that we've been fighting. And so that's Tulsi Gabbard. And I'd wrap, it's much more, it makes much more sense to take somebody that you're running against who has this much charisma yeah. and this much support and this much real-world experience and put her on your roster. Or vice versa, if you're Tulsi Gabbard and, you know, you're a small state senator and you're still in the reserve military, 
Yeah, but and I think for Tulsi, Andrew Yang having that whole universal basic income thing is something that... It works, though. I mean, for Christ's sake, Alaskans have been doing it for, what, decades now? Yeah, but if you think about it, in a perfect world, it would be Tulsi would get the right and Andrew Yang would get the left. And they would win the election just because they're from two sides of the bipartisan lane that we have here in America. Although right, Tulsi kind of drives our car a little bit closer to the yellow line in the middle. The other way of looking at it, though. But the thing is, is that Andrew Yang is way too left for right people that do true. like Tulsi Gabbard to get on board if they were to run on and take it together. Andrew Yang is way too left. There's so many right-wing people that do left. not like do, the. They don't. Uh, so they don't EBI like it, and the they don't. Hurdle. They don't that like they have it. to get over. Then they're gonna win. Like if UBI is the hurdle that they have to like deal with in the first term presidency, they'll be fine. I mean, what I'm saying is, as a president, you usually have to deal with what your campaign running platform is. Usually in year two or three of your. Right, and so what I'm saying is, if you bring those two together, you have, you don't just have a and president. Okay, and what I'm saying on. here, hold hold on, let me let me clarify something. Okay, Andrew Yang being the vice presidential candidate usually means that probably his platform gets glossed over. But well, I'm see, pretty sure that he one, needs to be VP though. But I'm pretty sure that he was VP mm-hmm. because of his connections and because of his background already in the business world. He's not a politician trying to stick his hand into economics. He's an economic success story built on failure and learning. And he's bringing what he's learned in those principles to change what needs to be changed, all right? You give that kind of personality and experience, put it in the VP section. The VP's one major responsibility is overseeing the Senate in case of a tiebreak. You know how much free time he has to work with the congressional branch to figure out how to litigate what he's trying to do. And then you have all of the experience that Tulsi Gabbard brings to bear in the commander-in-chief position. You don't have another Bush administration, like we were talking about before the podcast, where you have a commander-in-chief who literally tells the generals, go take care of it. I don't want to hear about it. I agree with you. It works. But what I'm saying is on the campaign trail, what I was trying to say in the beginning is that he has the biggest, most juiciest stake when it comes to his platform, right? Meaning if Tulsi chooses Andrew Yang as a VP, mm-hmm. the whole ticket, to, like Gabbard mm-hmm. Yang is going to become about UBI, whether or not Tulsi wants it to or not. It's just going to become that. And See, I feel like that's totally like that's, that's totally gonna pull support away from. I don't think that's true because here's how I see it: if you go up, you have the presidential debate. Let's say Tulsi gets the presidential nominee, she picks Yang up, and they take her to the to the task about UBI on the presidential debate. And she all she has to do is simply say, "This is not my field of expertise," which is why I have somebody like Andrew Yang that I feel I can trust to help guide and work with lawmakers on behalf of the people who understands the 
functionality of capitalism and how it needs to work versus how it's currently structured. And because that's his court, if you will, that's where that's his game. You defer her stance on it to his. And yeah, that puts her in the sort of bandwagon camp. But she, when you clarify that it's not your wheelhouse and it would be irresponsible of you as a potential leader to bullshit an answer on stage yeah. that you don't have the answers for, no matter what you say after that, it's called humility and it's called wisdom. All right, You don't sit up there and grandstand when you don't know. And yeah. if you do that on a presidential debate stage, you're garnering so much more everyday person trust because everyday people are sick and tired of bullshit they're sick and tired of bullshit politicians they're sick and tired of panhandling and the rigmarole which is why a lot of people voted for Trump I was just about to say look what y'all got for being safe right so I'm like but you need somebody has to be humble enough and genuine enough to say this is out of my depth like, I'm good in these fields, which is why you have a VP and a cabinet and all these other positions that I'm going to fill to help me flush out where I'm weak. Right. But this is why I'm qualified. And these are the things that I'm going to have to help flush me out. Andrew Yang flushes out that ticket. The same way if Yang gets the buy, he goes, you know what? I'm going to have my VP be Tulsi Gabbard because she has a functional understanding of the position that Mandarin Chief entails. And that can be drastically important, especially even if you have to make the final decision at Yang and you're not a trained soldier, you can counsel with your VP and she can have, you can give her your proxy and be yeah. like, look, she's going to handle all this, write an executive order during my administration, my VP is going to handle it because yeah. she's a soldier. She gets it. This is out of my depth, and I've got too much work I have to do trying to bring bipartisanship change. Yeah, but that that would make a big weak point to where you'd have a commander-in-chief that has never been in the military, but then you have a VP who's like... I mean, but that's, I mean how many... When was the last the president an active or previously active... Duty? I know, but if you have a dual ticket and you have your most experienced commander... Mm-hmm. Not commander in chief. That just looks so bad. Now, see, Trump has you're no. Drunk, you're getting dragged okay. up in the look of it. Right, I am, and that's I the am. problem because, in terms of functionality, that it shouldn't matter the way the offices look to the people. The world mm-hmm. stage is a different argument, but that's why you have a, a president and a VP, and then they go together hand in hand, like this concept that we have that we've created of having a two-person ticket and only caring about the first person on the ticket is absurd. Mm-hmm. And it's flawed, and it's dumb, and it's lazy, and it's stupid. And we as people are dumb and flawed and stupid, which is why we've allowed it to continue, and it shouldn't. Mm-hmm. The president shouldn't have as much power as that position does. Delegate some of it to the VP. Mm-hmm. Because the VP is supposed to take over if something happens to you anyways. Right. Give them the, some cursory background so, if, God forbid, they do have to take over, they're not coming into everything blind. Right. Like, that's not a good tack. Like, you don't want that. The country doesn't want that. I don't want that. Mm-hmm. You think Pence is up there sitting on his ass, twiddling his thumbs? No. 
I guarantee you that man's on phone calls every day coordinating everything that Trump has no idea what to do about. Right. Guarantee it. And that's just how that would work in that dichotomy, which is what you're explaining. Right, which is what I'm saying. That's how it would work. Yeah, he's like, you know what? I can't miss this budget meeting. We have to go figure this out. Yeah. Tulsi, pick up the phone. Call the five star, four star, three stars. Get them in here. Have a conversation. Yeah. Coordinate with the cabinet. Because the VP is technically above the rest of members of the cabinet, including SecDef. Yeah. All right, so... Technically speaking, VP, whatever the VP says, goes unless the president says otherwise, which is a huge misnomer that people don't understand. Yeah, they can, if they don't agree with the VP, they can just call the president and ask. But nine times out of ten, the president's going to back the VP. Right. Unless it's a conflicting issue. You know, if it's like some legislation that's in the middle of litigation, you know. Usually presidential and VP counsel trying to make sure they take the same stance. And platform yeah, at least right. publicly they, they do. And so right. it's like, if the president's already delegating it to the VP to take care of and coordinate, then that's the president's stance anyways. Yeah. So it makes sense regardless of how, which way, whichever way you flip it on, Ant, on Yang and Gabbard, that it makes sense that as a duo, they work well. Yeah. Because they literally could divide and conquer. Right. And get shit done. Which, frankly, I'd rather have a single term of gaming gathering that actually changes shit than have a two-term president. Yeah. I'm sick and tired of the dog and pony show of two-term presidents. So, like, we don't want to be a pebble in the history of presidents. I'm like, well, all the presidents are going to be pebbles if you ruin the country and fall apart. So, right. what good does a two-term legacy do you? Now you're two pebbles. Yeah, great. <laughs> Two pebbles underneath my boot as I'm slugging through an anarchist country. That's great. Thank you so much, two-term presidents. We value your contributions so much. You did nothing, but thank you. Yeah, I think we just need a good string of one-term presidents. Just I think that do straight. Just just get it four years, yeah, and that's it. I think, and that's a, and that's another thing I think that's great about Gabbard Yang is that. Out of all the candidates on the stage, they're the most willing to listen to other people's reasons and evaluate it and go, let me add this to the equation and see if it still makes sense. And if not, if, the, if their logic or arguments hold water more so than the new evidence, that's fine. But if their arguments don't make more sense in light of new evidence, they're more than willing to adjust and change. Yeah. Yang seems to have gotten that out of his failures as an entrepreneur and businessman um, and Gabbard's gotten it from her military experience yeah like I don't understand how you can look at those two candidates and go you know what I want to vote for Warren she's been in politics for forever it's a good thing yeah like if you wouldn't vote for Clinton because Clinton is a crony Democrat as most people would describe her why the hell are you going to vote for Biden or Warren or Kamala Harris or anybody that's right. got a long-standing history in politics and no real-world experience outside of the public sector? Right. Like, doesn't make sense. Right. That, that reason holds water for everybody on that stage. And even against Tulsi to some extent, but again, she has the real-world military experience to balance her out and 
she comes from a small state where the only time she ever gets anything done is through cooperation. She doesn't come from a super candid or super delegate state like California <laughs> where they can just throw their weight around. Alright, so in that in that light, that concept of crony Democrat doesn't hold water with Tulsi Gabbard's criteria. Yeah. Which is why it's great. And if CNN and Google and YouTube hadn't been suppressing her trending rates when uh, Hillary Clinton was throwing her under the bus at the being groomed as a Russian asset, then she might have made the next debate. Yeah. You know something's going on when the Clintons come out. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's literally just the Bilderberg group going, you know what? She's not a business person, but she's super smart. She's and, not the bear uh, we need. She's uh, she's dangerous because she's so vocal and people like her. I don't got a tag for that. She's bird. the Katniss Everdeen dude. She's gonna <laughs> burn your ass to the ground, son. But Clinton's over there, like uh, they don't got a tag uh, for that shit. bear. That's why they can't get that bear in office. Mm-hmm. They don't tag and then CNN bear. got busted again for trying to retroactively change the word Russian in the report to Republican. Mm-hmm. They were like, "No, we didn't mean Russian. We meant Republican." So she's so going to be supposed to be grooming her to be an asset. And I'm like, that literally Republicans doesn't Republicans have assets? I don't know. At this point, maybe, but there's another civil war. Is Trump a Republican asset? <laughs> no, they thought he would have been, but he's definitely not anymore. Well, he's a Democratic asset. Oh, what type of asset is he? He's just an asshat, that's all. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, well, I love making fun of Donald Trump sometimes. Yeah, I be hating, but, you know, it's all right. It's, history's got to have one man that hate them. It went from, like, Hitler, Bush, Trump. That was, like, that was the progression right there. It was, like, Hitler, Bush, Trump. That's, can you think about anything, anybody between Hitler and Bush? About? It just went Hitler, Bush, Trump. I mean... We hated Hitler, then we hated Bush, now we hate Trump. Oh, you forgot Clinton, bro. I mean, dude, you didn't hate Clinton. You wish you were No, Clinton. motherfuckers hate Clinton. They hate Clinton <laughs> now. They voted for his policies, but they hate him now. They're like, how could you do this? So, like, so was Hitler, Clinton, Bush, Trump. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, literally. I mean, he literally signed in, I mean, he signed all the policies in the 90s that literally just militarized the police. Like, Dude, how do you go geez. from a Hitler to a Trump being most hated? No, probably publicly like like court of public opinion is a fickle bitch. No, that's all. Goodness. That's all I can tell you. Sorry, this is definitely not gonna be a safer word for a kid friendly podcast, probably. Dude, we've already got the explicit badge on real talk. We've already got the explicit badge on podcast, so yeah, you know, that's what I'm talking about. That's why. That's, that's why you don't you have honor, to do. Son. That's why you don't have to do PBAs and be on podcasts. That, that's why we call it. You know, or, or what is it? PSAs. Not PSAs. PSAs. Yeah. PSAs. You don't have to do PSAs. Not safe work. Your oh. discretion is advised. Yeah. I might fucking offend you. Right. I just, I kind of take the Bill Burr approach. kind of approach. I just take if, the if old school Oakland Raider if approach. If you're offended, too bad. Get out. <laughs> nah, I take that old school Oakland Raider approach. If y'all are anybody's a football fan out there, you understand what I'm talking about. When the Oakland Raiders were 
literally they had like the worst reputation ever just because they were from Oakland and then they decided to lean into the curve as a team and they in one season they accumulated the most the highest number of fines like in terms of like how much the money quantity not like just in general numbers of fines but in terms of how much they were fined they set the record yeah for an entire team and they didn't give a fuck, dude. They'd start fights, brawls. Nobody yeah. wanted to fuck with them. And I'm like, look now, I'm above getting down and dirty first. But sometimes you gotta get down that dirt and start slinging. Yeah, man. It's Oakland. Yeah, get dirty with the people doing the slinging first. That's all, that's all I'm saying. Sometimes yeah. it's best to hold your hand, and other times it's best just to throw the cards on the table and sling. Right. Right. Man, I was thinking about my kids. Mm. Dude, I know you've been listening. We've been listening to this podcast lately. Did you hear about, and I was like, I was feeling it so much, feeling it so hard, where you had this father and mother fighting over this kid because the mother wanted the kid to be a girl. Well, I don't know all the information. but the, Are you talking about the court case that just went down in Texas? Where um, the courts ruled that the kid can or will transition against the father's wishes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. Yeah, that's a controversial one. I can't. But from one point, I, I get the court's stance because it's about protecting the kid's right to develop and grow. And because it's an unknown... You All can't right. say one way. This is where we get the insurance money out. This, is this I mean, but definitively, you can't say one way or another what's good for the kid until after the fact. You I don't, don't know, know if anybody knows, feeling-wise, what's good for a kid, or more that a kid doesn't even know what's good for a kid at that kid's age. And from what it seems like to me, it's like, it's not wanted. The kid doesn't want it. Father doesn't want it. But the mother just totally wants it. Really? You think the kid doesn't want it? The kid's six, bro. No, I'm... I mean, dude, I have a seven-year-old. Come on. Your six-year-old does not know what they... They don't know, bro. I As much as parents so, want to... As much as parents want to... And trust me, okay, this is what I'm saying. My household has to be the most diverse, mixed bag of left and right wing and centrist ideals all mixed into one pot. So I'm all about free range raising your children. Like, I let my kids go outside and play. A lot of parents don't let the kids do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I'm saying? But there's one that you just, I'm. I have, I'm about freedom. I understand that. But, but what I know is that your kid does not know major life-forming, altering information at the age of six or seven years old. They don't know. That's a fair point. They don't know who they like, what they like. They don't know where they're supposed to go, how they're supposed to do it. Like, your kid may know that they're not supposed to go past the sidewalk, but they don't know why. Like, this is my thing, is that 
you may know you want to do something, but you don't know why you want to do it, or you have a reason for why you want to do something, but you don't necessarily know the difference between wrong or right, or the impact of certain things, or, like, there's a lot of different caveats to, like, in my response. I get what you're saying, and there's two things that I always try and keep in mind when it comes to measuring. I try not to judge, although we all judge, but I really try not to judge, but you do have to take measure and take stock of the world and people, and in doing so, you want to be as unbiased as you can be. And so, when it comes to evaluating younger kids or younger people, um, particularly minors, and, and determining you know what's good for them, what's bad for them, what they should or shouldn't be doing, um, I always try to remember these two things. One, from the mouths of babes comes truth, mm-hmm. right, and what that really is about for anybody who's not heard that before is that kids have a genuinely naivete perspective of the world and so they see they very often see and interpret things the way they are because of how they've been taught or raised and so they're more likely especially if they have a if they don't have a filter yeah right like some kids are just born they don't have that so that social cue connection, right? Um, and so it's very easy uh, to overlook that fact that sometimes they just have a clearer perspective because they're not old enough and callous enough or biased or positioned enough to be blind. Um, and the second thing is something that. Um, I've always known in my head, but it was ironic. I was watching a uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, interview the other day. I don't remember whose podcast he was on, but um, they were arguing over the uh, like foundations of science and science advancement and why science is seemingly plateaued or whatever, um, and. He posited it in a much more clear way than I think I had ever really thought about it, but basically it sums up to this. At some point, along the line of development, reasoning, logic, understanding, learning, and evolution as a person, as an individual, and as a collective, as a species, the why of how things work is not as important as the fact that it does work. And no, I, you, totally, I totally heard that one. When, so, you, yeah. when you measure that against, you know, a, what a, a juvenile or a minor wants, particular, particularly a preteen kid who really doesn't even have a, a cursory understanding of in-depth history of our country or the world, um, you go, does it, how much of the why is important to the kid's development. Does the kid need to know the why of their reasoning? Do they have to, does that six-year-old have to understand their drive? Or is it better to nurture that drive because it is working and it is seemingly sending them in a positive direction upwards? Like generally, not like 
one-to-one -one ratio, but like in generally it's part of their growth and development. Let it play out, see where it takes them. And if it takes them down a road that's un physically unhealthy, mentally unhealthy, causes drastic damage and repercussions, obviously as a parent, your job is to go, all right, we got to correct this ship. Um, and it is always important as a parent to err on the side of caution. Because if you don't, and it's one step too far, there is no reset button. So, it's a catch-22, especially if the parents are divided on the issue. But, I think from the court of law perspective, it's about being fair to the kid, not the parents. Because inevitably, that kid is their own person. And if they have to have a medical procedure, yes, to a certain extent, a parent has medical power of attorney to an extent. But inevitably, the kid is the patient. And if the kid says no to a surgery, technically doctors can't compel them unless it's an emergency surgery where their life is in critical danger, like they're crashing and they have to be rolled into an OR for life-saving surgery, right? Where on that very, very wide scale of emergency surgery, transgender surgery, or the entire procedure of transitioning from one sex to another, that is entirely something that is outside the realm of law. Okay. That is not something you get to litigate. It's the same thing we, we were talking about um, a couple months ago when New York was trying to pass legislation or was it New York or maybe it was down south, they were trying to pass legislation that would basically turn doctors into criminals for yeah. um, for yeah. carrying out abortions after a certain number of weeks. And um, so that's something that you can't litigate because it's so unique from person to person. Right? Okay. Regardless of whether or not you agree with the psychological index of gender dysphoria and whether or not you believe or don't believe that it is a scientifically proven medical issue or whatever have you, that's not something for the law to determine. That is purely in the realm of medicine. That is case by case, doctor and patient, consult. That's how you resolve it. You can't just write something down on a piece of paper and make it so. Mm -hmm. and, I know, and I get that as somebody who I don't have kids, but I have nieces and nephews, and I've mentored kids, and I see people in my family going to make mistakes that I know are mistakes, and I, all I want to do is just put down on a piece of paper that they can't do it, and then all of a sudden they're not allowed to do it. I wish it worked that way. No, and that's what I'm about <laughs> but to... But it doesn't. That's what I'm about to and explain to you, because it does, actually. It doesn't. Because as a phlebotomist certified, if I go into a room with a child, right, mm -hmm. and a parent, mm -hmm. and I want to draw blood from the child, but the child screaming like crazy, but mm -hmm. I need to get the blood, and, mm -hmm. and the kid says no, but the parent says this child needs this blood panel, mm -hmm. do it, I have to do it, because the parent has power of attorney over the child. Like, they have power to make medical decisions for the child. Like, when I go and get shots for my kids for flu shots, mm -hmm. the doctor doesn't ask me, like... Right, I did that's this, like, not an emergency right. surgery. Exactly. 
But what I'm saying is, is that, all right, as much as you want to say that we shouldn't lit, like litigate these things. I'm saying you can't write a law to make the well-being of a child compulsory. Which, in law, the parents have power of attorney over their mm-hmm. children until their children are 18 for any decision. So, what I'm saying is that you have to separate what you feel from what is actually law, because what it is, what's law is that the child can't represent themselves in the court of law. Their parent can go further. That's why you can't arrest a seven-year-old and throw them in jail. You arrest them and put them in juvie, because you don't try them as an adult, you try them as a child. It's a big difference. Or you try and get them to be tried as an adult. Under Which they can be if they're a certain age. Yeah, or like the, psychopathic or the crime is as egregious. But my thing is that so apart from that, I want to go back to what you said because when Neil was asked this question, he was asked about it in a Very bag. Well. And he didn't talk about children. I believe the question, and this is where the conversation is probably going to go, is that the question is talking about mature people who make this decision, which mm-hmm. I'm not arguing. Mm-hmm. If you're above 18, you're fully developed, which is technically about 23, and you mm-hmm. know that this is... A, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. What I'm saying is is that in science, and this is what I feel like science people agree with me on, and Neil agrees with it, which is why the question probably wasn't asked to him about children, and this particular news story didn't come out until after this interview, and he mm-hmm. wasn't asked this, because in science, we know that a kid is not fully developed until he reaches right. maturity, which biologically and chemically. So what I'm saying, what I'm saying is that Science backs up the fact that a seven-year-old does not know what they are. Well, I understand what you may feel about a kid's rights, but... Then we go into a bigger philosophical issue of does a kid have rights? Like, well, of course it Or in rights. nature, does an adolescent of any type have rights? That's a whole big, that's a whole big the, issue. The question is not if they have rights, it's which rights do they have, right? It's contextually based. Well, they have, they have human rights. They have they human have rights. Human they have rights. And to a certain extent, they have civil rights. Look, alright, this is what I'm breaking with you. This is what I'm breaking even with you. A kid has a right to do whatever they want to do, including what you feel they should be able to do. They have the right to do that. If they want to say they're gay, they're gay. But I don't mean that they are. Right, I hear what you're saying. Like, Anybody has the right to say whatever they want because really none of this stuff means anything in the in the like in the purpose of why we're here. It doesn't mean anything. You have the right to probably do whatever you want to do, but does that mean that it's the right thing, or does that mean that because we we tend to feel like a right is right, which in you some cases right is not. Right. Well, I'm saying or that, something that is correct is morally right. Well, I'm saying it with that. I'm looking for the word right now. I'm saying it with that rhetoric to mm-hmm. kind of hit a hit a tone. Mm-hmm. We think that our right is right. 
just because it has the same word, just because it's really the same word, doesn't mean it's the same concept. So what I'm telling you is the seven-year-old probably has the right to feel, like my children, when they feel some type of way, they have a right to feel how they're feeling. And I totally understand that they have a right to feel how they want to feel because what you understand as any parent is in some situations, before you get angry, there's this thing that happens for about two seconds where you go back to when you were a kid, you look at the situation, you go back to that same situation that you were in as a child and you feel how you felt again and then you come back and you judge that situation like that. I know. I understand. You have the right to feel however you want to feel. Like my kid gets mad and he stops away to his room because I told him to do something. I've been there before. I've done it. I got smacked just like my kid got whooped. It's the same thing. You have the right to do whatever you want to do, but that don't mean that it is what it is. So this is right. what I'm saying. But you're comparing right. in, the, okay. in, the concept, but, in the context right. of a medical procedure, you're comparing flu shots or blood panels to life-changing surgery or a okay. life-changing medical procedure. What I'm saying is that that's not contextually the same thing and the medical power of attorney as a guardian, whether you're the parent or foster okay. or whatever as a guardian, it has a limitation. We can't nitpick out certain little tiny things. What I'm trying to say in the overarching theme of what I'm trying to say is that yeah, I'm comparing it to that because when it comes to all different types of mm -hmm. areas of deciding if a seven-year-old can be treated like an adult, people want to nitpick out what areas they want. Right. So the child can come because up. Because it's a very outlier so, case. Right. It's not uh, in, the, in the middle of the bell curve case where you can go, this is an average and this, so this is, is most, li most likely what's good and so this is going to be the judge's ruling. You can't do that, which is what I'm saying. A judge has ruled on this case because the parents took it there. Whatever the judge said doesn't mean that that is what is good or what is right for the kid. And there's no way for the parents to know what is guaranteed to work for the kid. Whether in this particular circumstance, there's no guarantee that the parents know if transitioning is the right thing for the kid. And the kid's not going to know that until much later on in life, until they're 20 years old. I don't even think the kid was trying to transition. I think the mother just wanted him to dress right. in girl clothes and wanted right. him to be socially yeah, there have been there have been many cases of that what in I'm, the past where a parent goes off left field and just tries to make their transition kid into kid, something uh, they're not. I mean, just I equally don't agree with this. Um, don't agree with this actor. There's uh, David Spade um, is a well well known actor, and his mother made him dress up as girls in audition for female parts. Mm -hmm. Just she, not because she wanted a baby girl or anything, but because she knew that that was the best way to get him more experience and get him out there. Did he like it? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Did he want to be Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz? Probably not. Yeah, but my but you have those experiences mm -hmm. and that's informative one way or another. Now, Again, we don't know the kid. <laughs> and and we don't know the true story, but what right. I'm saying is is that 
my argument is that if you have a seven-year-old saying that he knows she's gay, you have a parent supporting him saying that the parent supports that the kid knows he's gay. That doesn't make it so. I mean, that's what I'm saying, but I'm taking a different approach on this right now. Okay. This is my attitude I have with my kids. My kids... My oldest kid's seven. That's why I keep using seven. Child six, but I keep using seven because my oldest is seven. If you seven and you have the balls to step to me like you're an adult, you can get tried like an adult. Now, the same people that would say that this seven-year-old has the right that he says is gay, they don't feel like he has the right to be tried in adult court. They don't right. feel like he has the right to have an adult come to him and slap him in his face when he mouths off to him. Mm-hmm. So this is my point where I'm saying that you're either fully developed or you're not. That's just not true, though. How's it not true? Because the learning process never ends. Yeah, exactly. So That's, even, even everything when science says that your brain's fully developed, you're not. I mean, you turn 45 and have a what they call a midlife crisis, and then in three years, you go from being whatever you were to being something totally antithesis of that. Let's say you were a... a office worker in a cubicle and then 45 comes around and you know what you want to go back to school because you love physics and engineering and you get your master's degree okay in like six years you don't you can't just say that because their brain is not scientifically fully developed that they have no understanding of who they are it's just that their understanding is purely based on experience not scientific logos like ours is because we've studied science as we grew up and into our adulthood and we've read and researched and heard about and that kid hasn't but the kid has got to have some feeling about who they are I mean, and it's probably more there's a lot of things that that doesn't just change that because you become fully developed or a legal adult mm-hmm. that exists prior onto the law but there's a lot of things that that mentally, biologically, chemically, that a child cannot understand until right. they reach a certain age, which is like... I'd say that's also heavily mitigated based on the child's education. How can you say that when you have kids who graduate high school as a minor or college as a minor who get upper tier education, adult level education when they're 14, 15, 16. Right, but there's just so much experience and so much bandwidth that a child can have to where your upward development can only go for so long. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, you could have a smart child, but I'm pretty sure most children don't become childhood geniuses until they're probably in double digits. With childhood genius, you know that's operating at an adult genius level at seven years old. Zero. Very few and far between. Um, But again, this is why I keep bringing up the outlier examples, because this particular case was an outlier. This is not the average case of parents but what i'm saying is is that i understand there's outliers and we have that in science too where there's outliers but you can't 
take an outlier concept and apply it to the whole of society because it does not work. Right. So you're going to try and tell me... Which is why I'm saying that the, the law and the litigation in this mm-hmm. is useless. The same way the law and litigation about... No, it's not because there's one there's one aspect that we haven't... That we don't talk about, which is like now we're living in an increasingly social society. Mm. Now we think that because this outlier has won something that we... That it's just trying to be popularized. Now every child is going to start doing it and every parent's going to start mm. doing it with the child. Yeah, so like some effect about that. Um, I can't remember what it was. There's a very controversial study that was done. About, but, what uh, I, but what I'm trying to say is that I think one part of that argument that people neglect is that Okay, let's say that the child knows what he is. Okay. Is this dictated by his society, like his social workings, or is this determined by intrinsically who he is? Because if anybody has children, they know that children take what they see socially in society, they take their nurture of the world and they try to convert it into what their nature is going to be so if you ask a child hey like why did you eat those peanuts they'll tell you because i like peanuts like Mm -hmm. as if that's their natural inclination only to find out that for the past week at school they've been eating peanuts for snack so now they like peanuts so i'm not saying that like like, sometimes kids take on things just because they've been taking it on for so long, not because it's actually who they are, and they don't realize until they're older, I don't really like that. Mm-hmm. So, that's why kids can't be given too much freedom, because then they take what they see in society, and they run with it, which is not healthy most times. Which we draw from that is if you have a child that they grew up around alcoholism or drug abuse, mm-hmm. they tend to be alcoholics and drug abusers. Right. Because they, that's all they, they, they grew up with. Right. So who's to say that children grew up knowing that they are like, or they just grow up with parents that are free enough to let them try something and they try it and they do it because it's acceptable now i'm all for people who feel like they're a certain way but what i'm saying is is that the society needs to be set up and this is going to be crazy because a lot of people are going to get mad the society needs, and I'm all for like outside of the box, but the society needs to be set up within the dichotomy because what we don't get about outliers is that the beauty of having outliers and the beauty of having people outside of the grain and outside of the circle comes with having the circle in the first place. Like having the people that go against the grain means that there's a grain there in the first place. Mm-hmm. And you can't have people who are against the grain making strides and making things 
different for people in life, when everybody's trying to make things different for people in life, when everybody's trying to go against the grain, then going against the grain isn't going against the grain now. It's right. going with the grain. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, is that you can't normalize a behavior where everybody thinks that they're genderless. Right. Because then, because then we're walking the, around here with a world of a million people who don't know if they're male or female. They're just figuring it out. You need to have a dichotomy because when you grow, be because when you grow up to be eighteen or whatever age you feel, whatever age science feels like is good enough. When you grow up, you need to know. Like you need to know. And I'm not saying that people who know is not right. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is when you grow up. And when you're old enough to understand, and when you understand, when you hit that moment, like, I 200% understand what I am, I need you to know that you know who you are. What I have a problem with is people growing up all their life not knowing who they are, and everybody's telling them it's okay to not know who you are. And then you get to the point where you're supposed to know, and you've grown up 20 years in Mm. this loose mindset of it's okay to not know how I am and you really don't know who you are when you hit 23 you don't know because your whole life everybody's telling you it's okay to explore it's okay like you may look like a boy but you're a girl no you're a boy you're a boy you grow up doing man things oh, and if Lord, you go man things. this is what I'm saying it sounds it sound, okay what I'm saying sounds very um, patriarchal. What I'm saying sounds very. What you're saying sounds like it's coming homophobic. from a heated place and a passionate place. But it is when you're but trying when to communicate it. Uh huh. It's coming off in such a way that people are just going to shut the ears exactly. down. Exactly. But what I'm saying, you don't like it, don't listen. But what I'm <laughs> saying is, is that you need it because <laughs> when you come to that moment and you need to know. Keep talking. I'm gonna grab another beer. Right, you, you you need to know. Mm. Like, I I don't know what it is. I, I don't know what it is. When we compare it to a bunch of other things in life, I can get you a I can give you a whole bunch of different pictures of the same concept in life when we're talking about the exact same thing. Like. My thing is, you can't go through life. This is why a lot of successful people make it. Okay, hang and on, this is hang on. Before we get into mm-hmm. that portion of it all, we got to address two things. One, okay. given the fact that we live in a country that does not allow discrimination openly anyways, no. based on gender or sexuality, which I'm not for. That's my right. Answer. I know that's not what you're saying. But given that, the relevance in an individual's character development, mm-hmm. the the weight that you give gender, sexuality, or your biological sex in your character development is incredibly diminished because we are growing up being told. It's not going to be part of your evaluation. Dude, okay. It's not. I mean, literally, you grow up caring. It's not going to be part of your evaluation. It's not allowed to be. Yet, just like with race and with anything else that's considered protected 
that you can't discriminate against, people still have their own positions on it. And those people hire people. Those people employ people. Those people work above other people. Some people, some of those people have to fire people, right? It's, you can't weed out all the prejudice and all the bias. You, you can get it, to, you could get it to 99.9%, but you would still have a 0.01%. It would still be there. So when you're teaching, giving knowledge to a minor who is in development, Although it's a teeter-totter, right? You don't want them to go one way that could negatively impact them. And you don't want them to go another way that can negatively impact them. You want them to stay in the middle and do what's... Find a balance in the world, right? And so the, thing, the only thing you can do is give them the knowledge. Equip them with the understanding for them to make their own evaluation. Because at some point they are responsible for making their own choices, deciding what they do or don't like, deciding whether or not they want to spend 70 hours a week practicing an instrument because they want to grow up and be a musician who specializes in that instrument or vice versa. They want to be a doctor. They want to be a marine biologist or a lawyer or go into public service, whether that's the armed forces or policing or uh, litigation and lawmaking at some point and again it's a case-to-case -case basis as parents raise kids you as your kids first teacher have a, a hand on the rudder of their ship mm -hmm. as do they I mean they're literally the ship in the metaphor but so the ship's gonna go which way it wants to go right and you have a hand on that pulse to determine, okay, this is how I can influence it. But if a storm swell rolls in out of nowhere, your hand on that rudder is not going to do a wits-ass difference. Not really. You, you'll try and you'll mitigate it, but the kid's still going to have to go through that storm. And you'll go through it with them. And there's going to be pain and misery and learning and if you make it through to the other side, nine times out of ten, you'll be better off. But all you can do is give them that knowledge because at some point as a parent, you go, you need to start making these decisions for yourself so that you can learn consequences. You can learn how to be your own authority. You can learn how to be your own champion. Stand up for yourself. Defend your position. Defend why you changed your mind if you change your mind. So at some point before a kid is 18, you entitle them with this. You give them that credence and approval. So, and all I'm saying is it's a case-by-case -case basis. Sometimes it's 13, 16, whenever. I gotta hit the camp. Well, just for that, we're gonna take a break. All right. And we're back. All right. So before we jump back in. The uh, mm -hmm. beer we're drinking is a uh, hazy style IPA or Indian Pale Ale. For those of you who are out there interested in getting into beer, whenever we uh, have a beer or a drink, I'll try and go into a little background and the style of it and break it down a little bit. Um, so this one as a hazy, it's, it's also oftentimes referred to as a juicy. And basically it means it's an unfiltered IPA that has a lot of fruity notes in it. 
Um, that's a general way of understanding it. Obviously, from beer to beer, it varies. And by juicy, it has sort of that, like, citrusy, um, fresh fruit vibe in the beer. Oftentimes, it comes from the hops they use, not actually a fruit puree that they put in during the brewing process. Um, and so hops are uh, the buds of a, a hop plant are what they would typically ferment in the process to give that that beer that beerness, if you will. Um, and so these hops are going to be typically brighter, uh, more well-rounded, um, and oftentimes more bitter. And the, they generate more bitter bitterness in the brewing process than, say, um, hops that you would use in a stout or uh, a traditional light ale or a Belgian style, that kind of thing. And so this is a Hazy Indian Pale Ale from Hall River Brewing. This is specifically the Citrum Melon Unfiltered Hazy IPA uh, that also has, it's got a blend of Citra Hops, which is where you get your traditional Hazy IPA notes, and then you have it blended with a uh, fresh watermelon. That sounds good. Cheers. Cheers. To all those who have to listen to this drink. <laughs> <coughs> now, from where... In me choke. <coughs> from break till now, I've had to keep this in my mind. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's Go all ahead. good, man. But, um... <coughs> all right. Like all issues, I feel like we start at the root. So right. we're just going to go from the roof down to the foundation for a little bit. Now, the issue starts with heteronormativity. heteronormativity. Mm -hmm. Issue always starts there because the, we, forget, we forget in society that... In the beginning, at one point, the way our society was set up is that nobody knew who anybody was sleeping with. Right. You didn't know. It wasn't broadcast. You didn't. There was such a thing as chivalry. You don't. You don't broadcast it. You don't act in a certain way. Nobody knows if you're gay or straight. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows who you're going to bed with because you don't put it out there. And keep that shit on the down low. This is the issue. Everybody started coming out and showing who they were doing and stuff like that. And when it sprung out that a couple of people were doing the same sex, that's when we as a community said, oh, no, that's wrong. So, right. Because, you know, it's a change in the social fabric of acceptance. Exactly. And it's an abrupt change. It's not a change that... But I guess change naturally so, is abrupt, though. So what I'm saying is that the issue starts in the beginning with everybody, no matter what orientation you fall under, letting everybody know who they sleep with. Mm -hmm. That, in, in the first part, is controversial because people don't... You shouldn't... The society shouldn't be set up to where you broadcast your business out there like that. Now, with that being said, 
at seven years old, you shouldn't be broadcasting your business out there. If adults shouldn't be doing it, you shouldn't be doing it. So that's why I said we're going from the foundation. We're coming up. Beginning the argument, we started at the roof and we started going down. I brought it back down to the foundation. Nobody should be broadcasting who they're sleeping with. Boy, girl, alien. Nobody should. Why not? It's just... It's not... It's of no importance. So if it's not important, why does it matter if they do broadcast it? Right. So what importance is it for me to let you know that I'm straight and for her to let you know that she's gay when we believe in monogamy? I don't know. And You're all the, of us are in the, a relationship. The, the social network, the social fabric says, doesn't give reason as to why it shouldn't be said. Social fabric just says you shouldn't put your business out there. But what I'm saying is, is that you're not, you're not, you know what I'm saying? What I'm saying is, is that this article that we're talking about here mm-hmm. coming out. If I am in a monogamous relationship, this boy's seven, he's too young to be in any type of relationship. And the parents are in a monogamous relationship. Why, if we're not in the same social circle, which I can see is the only reason why we should be sharing this information, mm-hmm. should I know what your orientation is, period? That's like, apparently, me and you, it, we are really very matter. close. If it's not supposed to be weighed and measured against your, your evaluation, right? Why does it matter if it is or isn't out there? Does it matter that you have that knowledge? Does that knowledge inherently now, affect this is, your this judgment? This is my thing. Me and you, we probably know our orientations by now. Right. Because we've known each other for so long. That's not an issue. We talk about it. We talk about things... We talk about everything. That relate to sexuality because being people that share ideas, we need sounding boards to to bounce ideas off of or to Mm -hmm. like just say, is this wrong? Is this wrong? Like, you know, stuff like that. So that's understandable. But what I'm talking about is us as a society, we're on Instagram, I don't know you from Adam, and you're displaying your sexual orientation for everybody who comes to your Instagram pages. Mm-hmm. Why should I know that? Like, what I'm saying so is, them, is that the question is, if I don't know you, and we have both agreed that we are in a monogamous relationship, which most people are, why, or I am, and you, like... Why should I know what your orientation is if I'm not courting you? Because that's the whole thing that show, like that's the whole thing that comes out of chivalry and that comes out of the way is that like if I'm actively courting you, then you let me know what your preference is there in the moment. If not, then it doesn't matter. Like what I'm saying is is that usually it doesn't matter. It does not matter. So why does it matter for this seven year old boy who? Like, and we're going back to the foundation who should not be in a relationship, period, because he has no, like, friendships, yes. And this is what we lose in adulthood is that we lose the realization that when you get in a relationship, most times it starts off as a friendship first and then it evolves into something. Mm-hmm. And we miss that with kids 
because kids need to learn how to how to form relationships over years to be able to learn how to form a healthy relationship so then they can go on to form a healthy relationship right so when i'm not even talking when i'm talking about orientation and sexuality we're not even talking about like orientation and sexuality what i'm saying when i'm saying a kid is too young to know if he's gay or not because he's probably too young to know if he's in a healthy relationship mm-hmm. and i'm not even talking about romantic i'm talking about he is too young to probably know if he's in a healthy relationship with another human being right like a friendship so how is are you going to know who you like that's what i'm talking about but is there so many foundational well, things that is that is knows that in terms of sexual orientation is something that goes much deeper into the into the context of what makes a person a person than friendships do. Now that's relative. I mean, sometimes you form a bond with somebody like you and I have, and if it breaks, it changes the person. But when it comes to orientation, that's something that, like anything else, you have a general understanding of, when you're young, and then as you grow up and start to experiment, you find your lane, if you will. But if everybody's always telling you, right, like we were talking about the problem with heteronormativity, is that if everyone's always telling you there's only two lanes and you don't fit into either of them, it creates a disenfranchisement in you at a very young age. And then you don't know how to handle it because you don't know. Yeah, but I feel like I feel like telling you, you, but you don't know. And this is going to be crazy because now I feel. But I feel like if you deal with that for a long, like. If you're under that disenfranchisement for a prolonged prolonged period of time, I'm pretty sure you're going to come out of that a healthier individual yeah probably because it's, and, it's and, not and, good to be stuck in one of two ways the and i'm not even i'm not even gonna say what i really wanted to say but i'm just gonna put it under the umbrella of you are probably gonna be a healthy individual at the yeah, end no, of the, the more exposure you have to trials and tribulations the more experience you get in handling and learning from failures or the more experience you get from positive and the bad more you get cut into a diamond, bro. Right. So but what I'm saying thing, is, but the is thing that about if, orientation though is that that kind of relation, that kind of learning experience is always an intimate one. And so when it's bad, it's not just like your friend stole your lunch money and now you're not friends anymore and you have to go to the same middle school and high school because you live in the same area. It's bro. it's catastrophically different because you feel if you're hurt in an intimate experiment, you've opened yourself up to somebody and then they've caused you this emotional pain or trauma or worse if they've assaulted you or physically harmed you and mentally damaged you for that takes years to to get over and to deal with it. And yet if it happens at a young age because parents are so closed off or their guardians are closed off and say that there's only supposed to be this this dichotomy and they can't open up the other pathways that we know exist that we know people choose or if you don't want to use the word choose that we know people fall into and live healthy successful lives if you can't 
give your kid that knowledge early on and then they're traumatized, it prevents their development. It is hazardous not to have a conversation and education, even in late elementary school. Okay, let's get a little looked up here. Let's get a little looked up here. Because we are already explicit. Nah, I'm about to get real with y'all for a little bit. I'm about to get real. I'm about to get real. This is where the AP comes in. Look. Little Johnny is going to grow up with his mom. I don't care. Little LeBron is going to grow up with his mom telling him that he's a girl. Mm-hmm. And he's gonna grow up thinking that he's a girl, and he's gonna grow up on in that community doing those type of things. And little Johnny is gonna—that's just how he's gonna roll for the rest of his life. Fine. What I'm saying is, is that little Johnny. If he probably grew up in a community that had a dichotomy, would have realized that if he would have grown up knowing he was a boy, being told he was a boy and he should do boy things, he probably would have got married and would have had a wife, and he would have known he was straight, but every time they had sex, he just wanted her to put it, her finger in his butt just a little bit. <laughs> That's, I mean... It's such a trivialization, though. <laughs> it's not. It it's is. It's not. It what is. I'm saying is, is that you can argue. Back okay, and so forth. this no, is hang my, on, hang on. this is you, you, this is my point that I wanted to make. Just put out your point. I just put out a very subtle point. Now I'm put out the hard point, which is that the spectrum of, and we like to think that the spectrum of being straight is so thin when it's actually very wide. So just because you grow up as a boy, feeling like you like boys or feeling like you like girlish things, probably doesn't mean that you are a girl, it probably means that you're probably more in touch with your feminine side, or you like more feminine things. And usually, the spectrum of straightness, when you become an adult, you realize there's a lot of things that some really straight dudes do that you think are like really straight and really masculine, that you feel like are some really feminine things, but they just like that. So then is it really so masculine my thing, feminine thing? Like, that's that's my point, but what I'm saying is that you, you're saying that, it's, that, it's, that it falls under one of these dichotomy lanes, but if you grow up, right, when we look at adulthood, what I'm post, saying is that no, I on. feel like when we're growing we look at adulthood, the relevance of what we tell our kids is uh, masculine or feminine hobby or toy or thing to do activity is incredibly malleable and frankly fluid. I feel like that's the beauty in having a dichotomy is that you realize when you're doing a masculine thing that is not so ma- or how about or what, how about watch here's this a radical idea word. hang on watch here's this hold on, radical, hold on hold on radical hold on concept. hold on watch this watch this you have men that hunt for a living that they bring their food back and they cook it for a living. And that's how they make their living. They hunt their food and they cook it and they stay in the kitchen. Now, we've been led to believe that if you go out to the supermarket all day 
shopping and you come home and you're in the kitchen all day, that means you're a woman. But now here we have dudes that are in the forest all day, killing their meat in the supermarket all day, coming home in the kitchen all day, cooking their food like a woman does. So what we soon realize is that a lot of things that we feel like are masculine or feminine are really not masculine or feminine. But the beauty of having a dichotomy where we say that these things are masculine and these things are feminine is when we grow up to be of age to understand the world, we realize that things aren't really masculine or feminine. So why do you even bother putting that false framework in the place? Because you need this for the healthy development of the mind. I can't explain it. Do you? This is what... If you can't explain it, then do you really need it? What I'm saying is that I feel like there's an effort... Now listen, hang on. I'm not saying that we don't need to teach our kids how to hunt, how to defend themselves, how to grow up, how to cook, how to clean. Yes, you need how all has, of that. But how has yeah. any species ever taught themselves how to adapt without having the same dichotomy in front of them for thousands of years? Pick any other species in the world, and I guarantee you, they don't give a shit. I'm, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is pick a species. It doesn't inhibit their development. Is what I'm saying. Like, no species that get, no spe- social fabric being integral to our kids' development beyond the fact that a social fabric in a in a child's life helps them develop cooperative skills better than if they're isolated. They can still develop cooperative skills if they're isolated, but they develop them better and they handle groups better and they cooperate more if they have that socialization. But that socialization does not have to come in a broken down dichotomy of, well, if you're in the kitchen all day, it's a feminine thing. But if you go and hunt and kill, it's a, and kill your food, it's a masculine thing. When that's why we're living in, in the reality, America. it's the right. same thing. So just say it's the fucking same but that, thing. Well, that's why we live in America. Just say it's the same thing. But that's why we live in America, where there's pockets of it's the same societies thing. that are different. The kid doesn't need a concept of masculine versus feminine. Yeah, and I feel like you do. Why are you wearing the clothes that you're wearing? Why are you not wearing a blouse right now? I'm wearing this shirt because I love why Jimmy Hendrix, and I'm wearing these pants because they're functional. But why aren't you wearing a skirt if it's not feminine? If a skirt was functional, I'd wear a skirt. It'd be no different than wearing but a kilt. But it's functional for a woman, though? No, it's not. If it has pockets, maybe. I don't understand why they wear it, but some choose to. It It's part of what they identify with. That's fine. I'm not judging. I'm saying for me, you ask me why I'm wearing my clothes. I wear my clothes for functionality, and if it happens to look good, all the better. And I think everybody should wear clothes based on functionality, not representation. If your clothes make you feel good and you're willing to deal with the level of functionality that they give you, fine. You don't. You, you feel like you want to juggle everything around in a bag. Whether it's a backpack or a purse or whatever, and you want to wear clothes that are slim, form-fitting, don't have room for pockets, fine, do you. But I'd rather have loose, baggy clothing, doesn't stick to me, lots of pockets, I can put my stuff where I know it's going to be if I need it, and I can move on with life and I don't have to carry on a fucking backpack all day. Okay.
But that's not a male feminine or male female masculine. Yeah, it is. Because actually, as a man, this is what I'm saying. You like them to have a lot of pockets to carry your stuff. Is the reason why a woman likes a large purse so she can carry around no, her stuff. No, the reason I like having lots of pockets in my pants is the same goddamn reason women hate their jeans. What do you mean? Women hate their jeans. Ask any woman, what is the worst thing about wearing jeans made specifically for women? Pocket size is garbage. Okay. They can't tuck their phone. They can't tuck their cash, their ID, their wallets in and still feel comfortable. Yeah, but what I'm trying That's to say bullshit. is the reason why... That's you, a bullshit concept. The reason why you wear jeans that have a lot of pocket space is the exact same reason why a woman carries a big purse. Because we all... No, the woman carries a big purse because she has a lot of stuff to carry around in, and she's been taught falsely that she has to look a certain way, and therefore, in order to accommodate all the stuff that she's going to So why don't you carry function, around a purse? Have, because I wear pockets instead. <laughs> no, bro. You're contradicting no, yourself. No, I'm not. You're just not letting me finish my goddamn sentence. No. you just not letting me finish my thought. But that's, you know, this is what we do. <laughs> a purse I'm is saying, more functional than, than... A purse is more functional than... A, than... Than, than pockets? pockets on your pants. Bro. Why? Because it just comes off of you. So my clothes. Okay, what are you going to do if you need to run <laughs> and you need to run at maximum speed? You can just drop the purse. You can't. I can yeah. drop everything in my pockets if I have to. Faster than you can drop the purse? I can drop, drop it and do it at the same time. That's the point of having loose clothing in big pockets that your hands don't get caught up. In yeah, them. but I'm pretty sure scientifically you could reach maximum speed if you had dropped your purse first. Does it that. take one second to drop your purse instead of three seconds for me to empty my pockets? Maybe. Is that going to make the life or death difference if I'm yes. running for my life? No, because I'm going to kill the motherfucker. In most to kill life me. or death situations, it takes probably a second to a half second for you to get out of that range of you dying or not. So, yeah, it wouldn't make a big difference. Not to me. I'm not running. And that's why we're having this I'm conversation because it's your opinion that's No, it's not my opinion. Away and not it's my fat. choice of functionality. And as I said before, if. Your level of comfortability and your functionality is that whether you're a guy or a girl, you want to walk around in form-fitting clothes like my uncle did and carry a pocketbook or a handbag with you or a purse that has all your stuff in it, fine. Do you. But it's not as functional as you could be. It's not as functional as I choose. I decide I need to be. Okay, that's the reason I love jackets so much, even when it's like 70 degrees outside. More pockets, more space. Okay, it, it makes more functional sense. What doesn't make sense is that girls are taught growing up that they have to look a certain way, act a certain way, present themselves in a certain way. And boys are told that they have to act a certain way, behave a certain way, present themselves a certain way, and dress a certain way. Only to find Only out to that, find out that later that it's, it's relative. Which is so just tell them it's relative no, to begin with. No, you and cannot do that. They, yes, you can. No, you cannot. Yes, you can. No, you cannot. And I feel like this is the biggest oh problem in society. You can't have people running through the park all their life. Only for them to get to the end of the road. What is a, tra road. What is a trailblazer do, Cam? What do you mean? What does a trailblazer do? 
It's not a trick question. What is a trailblazer? What do you mean? How does a trailblazer move forward? How do they just blaze a trail? They just move forward. Into what? The unknown. No. Yes. You want to talk about how did the one, how did I'm the, here to tell you relativity, relativeness how did learned the, early on gives you a higher percentage of adaptability of elasticity both mentally and physically which is by and large much better for your health and your projected growth and success in society than learning to be adaptive later on after you learn to sit in a lane or sit in a box giving you kids that adaptability, that elasticity to understand shit's relative. If you don't like did, it, you can find a way that, to change it. How did the women at NASA blaze their trail through life? They grew up in a dichotomous system, which not only was women male, but it was also black, white. Right. Right up until that point that made history, which was a minute fraction of their whole life, that they lived with a dichotomy and a certain way of doing things, and for that minute amount of time, they went outside of the box, and only that minute amount of time. And if that black-white dichotomy hadn't been there, if that male-female dichotomy hadn't been there, NASA would have figured out a way to the moon a lot sooner than 69. What I'm trying to say is that a lot of times it needs to be there. No, it doesn't. That male-female ratio did not need to be there in order for women to be successful at NASA. If anything, it needed to be gone sooner. Because then the people with the actual functional skill in math would have been in the room okay, sooner so then, to solve the problem sooner. First of all, you said that it takes you going through something crazy to come out of it stronger. Now you don't believe that. No, you do. But my point is, when you give kids relativeness, they experience more conflicts that they have to find their way through. And doing that, giving kids the trailblazer problem, there is no set pathway forward. Find your way through. It makes gives them, them the elasticity that when it comes time for them to choose, they don't have to get a nine-to-five crappy foot-in-the-door job. They can create an opportunity for themselves because they'll have the mental fortitude and the self-faith and recognition to go, I can do this. Yeah, but it's almost always in conjunction with some of the type of dichotomy in that society or some type of duality. So, so now you're saying that the dichotomy is the hardship we subject our kids to. What do you mean? So in, in the examples, in continuing the example and piecing it together, I'm saying the fog of war, the fog of the unknown is a better learning tool and giving your kids that elasticity early on and nurturing it is better for their overall adaptability to success. You're saying... So you give it to them without an example? Give them, a, give them a dichotomy as a, as a jump-off point into the unknown in order for them to navigate. Which, to me, inherently doesn't make sense because we understand how the human brain learns and processes and creates memories. It's because better earlier on to subject your kid to 
wide ranges of things and multiple problems and various degrees of difficulty rather than expecting them to relearn later. It's much more difficult for because them to relearn when later. You give them a tra- when you give them a wide range of things without giving them any guidance, which is what you're talking about. I'm not saying you don't give them guidance. That's That was part of my metaphor yeah, earlier. You Your hand them, is on the rudder. Yeah, but you have to give them guidance within a dichotomy because then they don't you know which way to go. You can give them guidance based on your experience, which is what a parent does anyways. But you don't have to say these are the this is the dichotomy. Yeah, but this is the have, only way you can do it until you're 18 and then you can figure out how to do it on your own. Yeah, that doesn't then, make fucking sense. Yeah, but then do you have you do you guide them based off of your choices that you made where every single thing in your life was a choice and a decision based off of these things that you are told were That's an existential thing on a case by case basis. What I'm saying is that when you have your children are you going to do what you're saying based off of how you lived your life cuz you lived your life in the dichotomy too. So you're going to have to just totally take out the dichotomy. So how are you going to do that? I'll do my best to minimize the dichotomy, yeah. I'm, again, I said this at the beginning. You can't get rid of all of the bias. You're going to have to keep a lot of it. Yeah, and I should, and I believe Which you've been should. arguing about I believe about educators this. should. They should keep their dichotomy out of it because it's been proven that kids learn better earlier and when you expose them to harder things earlier they adapt to them and learn more grow faster and are more intelligent and more capable of applying that intelligence to problem solve if you allow them an elasticity instead of clouding up their brain with masculine and feminine understandings of a world that really doesn't give a shit give them the ability to understand that early on and teach them the patience and the ability to endure that other people in the world are going to function differently. And they're going to function under this dichotomy because they weren't brought up with the understanding that everything is so relative. But understand that because you know that everything is very relative, you're going to be more equipped to deal with the problem in front of you than they are. And it will lead you to more successful opportunities. So when you go out there and you have a boy, are you going to buy him pants and a skirt and give him a choice of which one to wear? Yeah, I'll be like, what do you like? That's what you're going to do. Yeah, and I'll be like, okay, okay. I cannot wait. I'll be like, you want that skirt? Let this look be, at this skirt. Let purchase. this be public. I'm serious. I'll be like, what do you like about that skirt? What does your clothing need to do for you? It's You got to have pencils. You got to have pens. You're going to have a phone eventually, a wallet with your ID in it in case you get lost. Can you fit all that into there? Is it functional? But then that's where you... Is it functional? But then that's just where you mess up and then you realize that you don't need any pockets to carry anything because having belongings is a way anyway. If the kid makes a natural jump to go, well, I can just put it all in a bag and then chooses to wear a backpack, I don't give a shit. That's then, their choice. They have but to then live with what it. do you do when your child... So they okay. go to school, they get teased about it, they come home, they want to talk to me about it, Let's and we take can have this that a conversation. Deeper. You buy your child a skirt and some pants, and they choose the pants because the pants are more functional. Okay. They can carry the pens, the phone, the wallet, everything. The skirt can't carry the wallet. Okay. Your boy chooses the pants. He chooses something that would normally be heteronormative. 
But you don't frame it that way because you've taken away that from him. But then later on down the road, he reaches more of mm-hmm. existential awareness and realizes he doesn't need any pockets to carry anything mm-hmm. because nothing matters. Right. So then he gets whatever he wants. He puts so then he, realize, he realizes that when you gave him the choice to wear a skirt or pants, you didn't give him the choice to wear nothing at all. How was that not his choice? Because you didn't give him that choice either. So then we reach a point where we realize that our society is inherently flawed in the way it gives us things, right? Okay. Okay. So then your child would have never had that awareness if they didn't have that dichotomy in their life to understand it. So what I'm saying is dichotomy. But like you just said, they'll gain that awareness later and it won't be as limiting to their understanding of the world. Yeah, but dude. Interpreting the world as a dichotomy early on severely inhibits and limits the mental elasticity, the ability to problem solve, and the ability to understand new things. That is a fact. It's not good. It's successful to a certain degree and to a certain extent, but it is not as good. And I refuse to accept that. I refuse to accept passing on partial or flawed knowledge when we have better knowledge to pass on. Should it be recorded? Yes. Should it be a lesson in history? Yes. But I think it's better in the long run that the elasticity is what you nurture. So that in when they do come across the dichotomy issue, the black and white issues in life, the hard, hard subjects that they're going to have to vote on about abortion or left versus right or democracy, socialism, communism, whatever, Marxism. They have the elasticity to go. I need to take a beat. I, I know how I was brought up and how I was raised. But I have to understand that's not how everybody else was. Let me look at this from their side. Let me read what they read. Let me put myself in their shoes and try and understand a different perspective. Let me tell you what's going on. It's easier for them to do that and to be understanding if they have that elasticity. This This is my thing, and I'm projecting it for everybody because it's happening right now. It's happening. We have the evidence. Okay. When you raise a child... And you give them a choice, and you raise them without the dichotomy. Let's say you raise them to where they understand that there's nothing that's inherently masculine or feminine. What's going to happen is that when they get older, they're not going to understand why everybody around them puts everything in a box. Or judges people and puts them in a box. Or why the world world judges them and persecutes them for being inside a certain box. So what's going to happen is you're going to have a bunch of kids who were raised this specific way. And you're going to start seeing increased depression, increased suicide rates. Because they don't, they don't want to be around. They don't want this to happen anymore. And you say that's not true. Why? why I say that's not true. Hang on. 
I'm to get closer to the mic. Sorry, just popping another beer. I say that's not true because that is the benefit of mental elasticity. That is the benefit of being a human being, mm-hmm. a homo sapien. We have a different brain that allows us the gift of foresight. We can see our own demise. We can have an existential crisis. And then we can come through it on the other side and be okay. That is the human X factor that allows us to adapt and survive. And the best way to nurture that key factor in humans is giving humans mental elasticity. And you can start it very early on. And if you nurture it, it gives them the security, their own mental fortitude and understanding that, yes, this person that I tried to get a job with post-grad or post-high school or while I'm still in high school doesn't understand me and why I was raised the way I am. And they judge me for not being able to check off all the boxes on their resume. And it's their fault for not giving me the chance to show them that I'm what they're looking for in a person rather than on a piece of paper. And the person who's raised in a dichotomy is more likely to fall into the category of judging somebody by a piece of paper rather than giving them the opportunity to prove themselves. Because they're going to use that dichotomy in their schematic and how to interpret the world. And they're going to have a baseline framework, as we said. Their, their base infrastructure will be a dichotomy checklist. And they'll rule out the exceptional people because they don't fit into the framework. And that's been the history of humans. People wrote off Albert Einstein. We're still proving him right. We're still proving him right on the things that he knew he was wrong on. Right? People have written off anybody and everybody who's ever made a drastic contribution to society, generally because of a dichotomy. They said, Einstein's not good at school. He's never going to amount to anything. He's definitely not going to become a mathematician. And the man helped create the nuclear bomb. He helped create and discover and engineer the foundation principles that allow medical professionals to use an MRI machine, which is literally a nuclear-powered magnetic wave machine. Now, obviously, no one's going to hop into a tube if it's got nuclear on the front of it, so they drop the nuclear and just call it an MRI. Okay, that person... Einstein had a drastic amount of self-fortitude and mental elasticity given to him. And he was so far outside the boxes and outside the lines that no one believed him until he proved them wrong himself. His own parents didn't believe him. His own father wouldn't back him. And he still pressed on as a trailblazer into the fog because he knew He knew he was right. And it wasn't because he fit into a box of monogamy. Because it's historical understanding that he was terribly in love with his secretary and not his wife. 
people like that have existed for ages in human society. Right? You look at philosophers who were laughed at in their day and age and, are, and were proven right. The heliocentric model, Isaac Newton and gravity. Imagine being Isaac Newton going, there's something out there in the world that you can't see, but it controls everything. Because an apple fell on my head. I think, I think. That's what I'm trying to tell you is way more valuable. I think. To pass on, like, I'm talking multi-generational. That's what you have to capitalize on. Not a dichotomy that's going to wash away and come back again based on the social fabric of your generation. Yeah, but that's why, that's why I just feel like on an intrinsic level that we have something coming for us as a society because as we forget that a lot of people don't make it. I mean, I hear you, but... Yeah, a lot of people don't make it. I'm not dude. saying... I'm not guaranteeing your kid's success. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to guarantee that your kid's going to be the next Albert Einstein or the next Newton or the next president. Okay, because you gave them a mental elasticity foundation. I'm saying they're going to be more successful, especially in adversarial times in the next 40 to 50 years that are going to pop up than people who are raised in a dichotomy. Because the dichotomy, as we understand, is relative once you're an adult. So don't waste their brain space, their functional space as a kid teaching it to them just so they have to unlearn it later. It's so hard to unlearn something. Okay, but this is the reason why this is not working, and this is the reason why UBI never works, is because we can't foster a system. Alaska disagrees with you. This is why we can't foster a system where everybody makes it, because everybody doesn't make it. Everybody doesn't. Majority of people don't make it. What are you defining as make it? We can't foster a society where a majority of people are accepted in society. It's just not it's not good for society. That's how society works. The majority dictates and the minority no. pushes back. And where they find common ground, minorities find success because of the law of concessions. Derek Bell research, research, this and wrote a paper about it and published this. This is the best way I can say this. Research, if you do your research... You realize that it's not the fact that everybody makes it in America that makes America great. It's the fact that America makes everybody feel like they can make it that makes America great. You cannot foster what are you any type of making it. Though? Are you talking like celebrity life, fame, and fortune? Because studies have also shown that happiness, particularly in America, caps out at about eighty grand. The happiness ratio, for in terms I think of, you kind of know what I mean, in terms of how much money you make and how happy or quote unquote successful you view yourself as, caps out at about eighty k, depending on what your cost of living is and where you are. Okay, so when you're saying, are you gonna make it? Can most of the people in America make eighty k? What I mean by making it generational wealth and happiness. Okay, very few make it. Generational wealth is a huge thing to I mean, say we, that that's part we of happiness. Can't nitpick every I get what you're saying argument. because you want no. I the point saying, is that we a, cannot make a society in which everybody make it. Mm. You can't make a society in which everybody so feels good. comfortable with just freely because it's not it. 
gives too many people in a society freedom to be in the fog. And it's not good for anybody. That's not true. The society needs a it's dichotomy. It's not good for people who aren't self-sufficient. You're right. It's not good for people who sit up on the top of the stands, who deal with the upper management positions. It's not good for them that not have a worker base because they function on a pyramid. And I don't mean like a Ponzi scheme or anything. I'm saying they function on a higher No, it's not good because... functionality. Because, well, let me explain to you like but this. for the people on the bottom, it's very good for them there to be able to deal with the unknown. There are some people... Because they could be let go and fired at any time. They have no security. There are some they people that come out of the womb here. Mm-hmm. They can function here where they don't need a dichotomy. For those listening, his relative here is above his headspace exactly. at the table. They're here. They can function here. They don't need a dichotomy. They don't need anything. They don't need anybody telling them this is how the world works, either this lane or this lane. Mm-hmm. They can function here. Right. But there's people that are here. And now we're at the, yeah. At the out. lower. Okay. And they need the dichotomy. Okay? No, they don't. That is a falsehood. They need somebody no. who can guide them. Dude, trust through- me. You are going based off of your experience in life. There are people that are here. They need the dichotomy. And through the hardships of life, and through the hardships of life, they learn how to get here. And if it wasn't for the dichotomy and them going through the weeds and realizing that it all means nothing, that they get there. And I'm telling you, it is more efficient not to have that dichotomy. Because when they see a problem, Negative. it can be resolved through a dichotomy breakdown. Usually, no, 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 no. usually, I'm not done. I'm not done. No, I'm, I'm, mean, not, I'm not done. I know. So let me finish. When a person comes across an issue that they have to solve, and they have the elasticity and mental fortitude that that grants them to solve the problem. They can look at historical examples for reference. And they may come across an example where somebody who was raised in a dichotomy was able to get past the similar problem or the same problem. But they can look at that, use it to move past the problem, and not be stuck in the pitfalls that that person before them was stuck in. Phil, dude, I understand you. But what I'm saying is you're looking at the world after the utopia has already been founded, tried, and true. No, I'm saying this is much more functional mindset prior to a utopia. If you're living in a utopia, you get Dude, to I know exactly what lane. you're saying. I know I'm people, saying mental elasticity is better because you can't live life in one thing. And I've met it's people. It's impossible. I've met people who've been raised in that environment, and it's very awesome to see they're very great people. At a young age, they had a very good grip on life. They were make it, able to make their decisions very young. I'm not saying you're wrong. But what I'm saying is all those people that I've met have come from a household who's making about $70,000 or more. So you can't so tell me... You can't tell me that in this way that everybody can do this thing because you can't. I'm it's, saying if you're little, growing up in a household that's not making enough money to cover everything 
learning to hunt doesn't need to be a masculine thing. It's given to you as a survival tool. Not a, it's a male thing to do, and this is what guys do. We go out and kill stuff. No. You learn to hunt to live because it, the meat is too fucking expensive to buy. It's not a male relative thing. Women hunt all the time. Women learn to hunt. Female pride lines do most of the hunting. Yeah, but I pack. feel like it's there's a lot of more things efficient. about your it's argument. It's not a male-female thing. I feel like there's a lot of things that you leave out of your argument that you don't understand that makes it impossible for what you're actually arguing to be an actual reality. Okay. Uh, give me an example of what I'm missing. Is that your whole argument for raising a child without a dichotomy is actually going to work in the society it's not i've seen and what i'm telling you is that i've seen it work in this society and the only way that it works is if you're financially stable only way, only way it works how do you think kids who grow up poor survive by staying in a lane by functioning, or adapting within, to by survive. functioning within a dichotomy with a mindset that is way different from what they're, they're adapting within. to survive on a daily basis. Okay. They're hustling. They're out there on the grind figuring it out. You don't get to figure it out. You don't learn to solve problem right. solve by staying in a lane that tells girl, you how to solve everything. A girl everything. has no money, so she has to adapt. What she got to do? Figure it out like everybody else. What's she going to do? Figure it out. It depends on where you're at. What are you willing to do? Is sex work going to be your backup? I mean, there are plenty of dudes out there who turn a trick. It's not the safest line of work, but it's, it's, within, the, it's, within, it's within a dichotomy, though. Not really. You go to the thing that is the most dichotomous thing. That's not... Sex work is not a dichotomy. There's a huge... Usually huge we walk away from these arguments... Ways. Usually we walk away from these arguments and We're I, say on that, bone. <laughs> I say that we are thinking about the same thing, but differently, right. but no, we're not. This is, we I think we're disagree. thinking about the same thing in very different ways. No. No. What do you think I'm talking about then? Some, I feel like I'm talking about or trying to convey what the primary characteristic for development in people is and the key thing that I've seen in all of my research and education and world experience is that the thing that makes people people is their mental elasticity and that's something given to the human species yeah but my thing is where'd you learn it from this is something I've concluded now there's the principle of mental elasticity is not uniquely mine it's a mental training technique for educating people and that people who are more mentally elastic or able to learn so my question languages is, better, they're able to multitask better, they're able to problem solve better, right? And that's a trait that the person who originally created this concept was attributing to the education system and certain styles of education grant a higher degree of men or measurement of mental elasticity of problem being able to problem solve by yourself versus needing to have previously learned a framework to, pro to solve that problem right I'm saying you look at 
the development of human behavior, humans as a species across the world and across history. And mental elasticity emerges as the key factor as to why we are the way we are, as to why we can function certain ways in one part of the world and entirely different ways in another part of the world. And yet we can still find common cohesive ground to create a social fabric. I just think we argue a lot of things that just don't matter, man. I mean, mental elasticity or not, like, um, I, I would, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying if you don't have the mental elasticity, if you're not going to nurture the mental elasticity in the kid that you're responsible for, whether you're a guardian or a parent or whatever, if you're not going to nurture that mental elasticity, then yeah, your backup plan, the, 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 fallback and punt plan is raise them within a set certain set of rules, whether it's a male-female dichotomy, masculine-feminine, or within the spectrum of functionality as humans in terms of who do you want them to embody and yeah, immortalize and take after we disagree, principles. Because I think I feel like you need the dichotomy, no matter how much you're gonna train a child to have the mental dichotomy, to have the mental elasticity, you need the dichotomy there. You need it present. I don't it think so. I purpose. think you just teach them. So how the are you skills. not? How are you not going to teach, teach a kid? You teach a, them the skills, and you don't put male or feminine, male, sorry, masculine or feminine in front of it, and they still learn the skills, and then they're not taking up headspace. So with how are you not going to teach your kids about dichotomy when it comes to sexual orientation? I'm not going to teach them about, that about masculine I'm not. or feminine. They're going to pick up. When you're made up of things that have dichotomies, too. They're going to naturally pick up the dichotomy from the rest of the world. That's an inherent fact. I can't change that. You can't change that. No law written in to education is going to change that. It's not. It doesn't matter what you put on a test. Kids are going to pick up the dichotomy function because it's so deeply embedded into our framework. I mean, it's down to the nope. bathrooms, down That's to the issue. Right, but I'm no, saying you no, don't no, need no, to no. teach what them that. I'm telling that's what you, I'm saying. It's useless What I'm telling that. you is that society is no longer in this way where your kids are around the dichotomy anymore. It, oh, no, it's definitely now still Now, society is no. more... That's so where we disagree. Okay, okay, so now no, I find no, no, out... Now, now we're, we're getting to the root. This is why we don't let mm. go. No, this is what I'm telling you is that no, the world is not going to be a dichotomy because we're running into a society now where there's no dichotomy anymore, so you have to have the dichotomy. Okay, so okay. this is very, okay. this is, now we're, we're making it. progress. Yeah. Because years ago, I would have had your Welcome exact to the same. space for this conversation. This is the exact, I would have had your exact same argument, and years ago, I shared your exact same sentiment, and I agree with it in that, in that, Occasion, but what I'm saying is right now, if you read the feed of life, the society, the society right now is non-dichotomous. Everybody's non-binary. Nobody knows what gender or sexual orientation they are, or they're different from the dichotomy. So there's no dichotomy in society anymore. We're slowly being transitioned. Into an okay, age. So I, well, no, I we're slowly, slowly being transitioned, transitioned into an already age. already transitioned. Like, the process is okay. either done or it's not. And that's a very big point because where we could say 
years ago that we have slow we're slowly transitioning or we have transitioned now with the technology that we have slowly transitioning and we have transitioned are one and the same things mm. because of the pace mm -hmm. of technology right because of how fast we accumulate knowledge and because if one part of our society has transitioned mm -hmm. you can pretty much predict that the masses are going to fall are going to fall behind it okay so when we're talking about industries mm -hmm. and parts of society that rule all of society the whole upper echelons of industries have already adopted the fact that there's no binary to sexuality at all that's not true they might they might say that they have but that's not true because their bathrooms are still male female right and this is what i'm talking about when i'm talking about elasticity and understanding the ability to understand your your place inside and both outside the social fabric companies will swear up and down on the media post on their soapbox that they understand and that they don't discriminate and that they don't have a dichotomy binary bias or they're doing their best to minimize it and yet their bathrooms are still split and i don't bring up this example to reference any legislation or anything like that. I'm saying as a dichotomy in our society, as far as measuring the dichotomy of masculine and feminine in our society goes, that is a sure sign that it's still there. And society, I'm saying society will do enough between the education system and the social interactions your kids are going to get when you socialize them with other children and other families. They go over to, other, to their homes or go out to dinner with them or whatever. They're going to get enough of that dichotomy that's built into our foundational framework as a society. You don't have to teach them that. What you should be doing is giving them the elasticity to understand earlier on the relativity of the social fabric. Understand, give them the tools to understand, the, to overcome the concept of social constructs before they understand what a social construct is so that when they come across that term, when they come across something being referenced with that term, they understand that what the conversation is really about is not whether or not something is or isn't a social construct. The conversation about is about how relative it is to your life. How relative is a position to your standards of living and does it run against your grain? Does it cut you off? Does it create a problem for you? If it does, how do you solve that problem? Can you solve it within the social fabric or do you have to create your own solution again? I'm going to give you the nugget here. This is how I'm going to raise my children. This is how I raise my children. Because this is key and I want everybody to listen. I raise my kids, teaching my kids that a man has to work and a woman has to submit to the man because, and I tell my kids this all the time, you'll realize that a lot of time a man wants to quit and a woman will be the one cheering on the whole situation. Now that's very important because what you understand is that you have a situation in which the, the action of the person doesn't match the nature of the person. And this is what a lot of people don't understand. You, I teach my kids mm -hmm. 
that a man should work and a woman should provide for the husband and his husband and submit to the husband. Because the woman is usually more active in planning and getting in there. And the man is usually more reserved and more flinching, right? It's what we don't understand. It's because men are set up to read situations as hunters because we just, we want a certain battle plan. A woman necessarily, she just innately goes in and gets it done. And she comes out of the freaking burning fire without being on fire. You're wondering how the hell she does it. What I'm saying is, is that naturally, innately, you pair people to act on their strengths, even though they have a weakness, because it complements each other. That's why we pair cheese with wine. That's why we pair all these things together. It's because when you take somebody or you take something and you pair it with something that complements them, you get the full package. So what I'm saying is that if you raise people in that dichotomy, which I do with my kids, but then you teach them that the dichotomy doesn't matter, they grow up knowing that this should be this way, but it really doesn't matter, which in some weird way worked for me as a kid, and some weird way really works. Because you grow up feeling that these are things men do, these are things women do. But then when you get to adulthood, you realize we do the same damn things. We do the same things. So then you realize it doesn't matter. I feel like that works quicker to expelling the dichotomy than trying to expel the dichotomy in the beginning. Because if you try to expel the dichotomy in the beginning, people are just going to naturally fit into it anyway. And not positively. So I understand what you're saying. But what I'm saying is, is that in order to work against something you have to work through it you have to go through the fire to know how to put it out so you can't not you have to play both sides of the coin to get the full worth of the money what that you're is saying is, is that what the principle of elasticity enables you to do okay so you probably think we're explaining it the same way but in different but I, what i'm telling you is that you have to put an emphasis that these are the things that are masculine and these are the things that are feminine. Why? Because if we don't teach the history, we're net we're gonna be doomed to repeat it. So if we all we've done in history is teach masculine feminine. No, no, no. We've not taught mentally. What we've masculine. done in the history is we've taught history without talking about without talking about what we've done in history. So we don't know how to how to come back from it because in in history we love to talk about how masculine it is to be a man and provide and how all men were working in the factories during mm -hmm. the industrial age but we don't highlight the fact that during the War renaissance times. and during colonized colonized times that was the place where the heel was invented men were wearing heels women were wearing heels mm -hmm. so now we think heels are feminine it's really a masculine started thing from england so we don't teach the history. So because we don't teach the history, we're doomed to repeat it. So when we don't teach our children what's masculine or what's feminine, we're doomed to go back and be like, this is what's masculine or what's feminine. I know it sounds weird, but 
It it's sounds true. like you're arguing in a circle about things that are, mm-hmm. because you've, as you stated, are already relative. You don't have to be bothered with because in history, all we've done across multiple countries is teach a masculine feminine dichotomy. And then as you become an adult and you have to vote and deal with all these things and you're watching the news and you're listening and reading and trying to understand things, you somehow it takes you after trying for 18 years to live in a dichotomy, it takes you another 18 to 30, 40 years to understand that it's all relative and then it's useless. That is so backwards to me. Yeah, it would, I mean, here's the thing about learning, right? If you practice something over and over and over again, right, in order to to convert it from short-term memory to long-term memory, you have to do you have to do it at at least nine times. But the problem is, if you do something wrong, if you practice something incorrectly, your brain still converts that into a memory. And if it succeeds by flaw, by fluke, your brain associates that success with the flawed way in which you succeeded. Right? And what I'm talking about. And that, that, that I just described is how I see the masculine feminine dichotomy. Does it work? To an extent, yes, but it's a flawed way of doing things. But to overcome that one flaw, you have to do it perfectly 10 more times just to overcome one flawed input. No, bro. Yes, that's a fact. I feel like the flaw. That's a scientific I feel like, fact. I feel like the flaw that has just magically been right is the flaw that we teach everybody that nothing fits into a dichotomy. It's not that it doesn't fit into a dichotomy. It's that the dichotomy is not the basis for understanding. It is. It's not. That's why men have more stronger bodies. That's why women only bear the children. That's why you can only procreate between a woman and a man. And I'm not talking about... We're not talking about science and surgery and shit here. I'm talking about natural without medicine. Science is science, bro. You can only do it naturally between a man and a woman. You can only have a woman have a baby. Men are going to naturally be stronger than women. It's just things that are masculine and things that are feminine. When we talk about things that are socially right. constructed. But biology and social constructs are two very different things. They, you want to draw... Okay, but simil- the reason why the man is stronger is the reason why we have the man work. No. You want to draw similarities between a social fabric and a biological emphasis because it grounds it in hard science and makes it harder to refute. But the fact is... During war times, during World War One and Two, when all the boys got drafted and sent off to war, women left the household during the day, worked all day long in the factories, then came home and continued to make dinner, continued to have to do the grocery shopping, and continued to have to do everything because the men literally were just whisked away by the right, government. But that's why you don't see the bigger picture. That, you know, I mean, that finish the in argument. and of itself should show you, which I know you've already stated that you mm-hmm. understand, but that when I say you, I don't mean you. I'm saying anybody listening. 
that one example should show you that the relativeness of the masculine-female dichotomy is not necessary for success. You can teach a woman how to hunt, how to backpack, how to camp, how to skin and kill and clean cut. And but she's cook. just not going to be as effective as a man is because she can't lift the meat no matter what she, no matter what her short, her light body mass does for her being more, for her being faster than a man on the hunt. Mm-hmm. She's not going to be able to execute the hunt to 100% because she probably won't be able to carry the meat all the way. It would maybe take more trips or maybe you take a smaller kill to make up for it. You take multiple smaller kills. There are ways. Yeah, but she just can't be as efficient as a man could be. Right, but that's not a social fabric thing, which mm-hmm. is what you're talking about. When you're talking about masculine and feminine, you're talking about the social fabric that we teach our children about. Yeah, but when you're talking about the physical performance, that's a biological thing that we've conflated with social fabric. Which is just inaccurate and flawed. Like no, I've been saying. Society has disconnected biology from the how it connects to the social fabric of society. No, I'm saying they've conflated it in the wrong direction. Mm. Which yeah. might, I mean, somebody out there with a better understanding of how English works might be saying the same thing. But the way I'm seeing it is that when you talk about masculine and feminine, you're talking about the social fabric. When you're talking male-female, you're talking about a biological derivative that's engineered by nature, not by people. Okay? Nature says estrogen is what makes a woman a woman. It That's what drives the hormonal changes. You know, the chromosome, not the estrogen, because man, you have estrogen. Thanks for cutting me off. What I'm saying is that drives the hormonal difference in puberty, right? Biologically, the chromosome determines your sex. But when you hit puberty, your efficacy is driven for women by the estrogen predominantly. And for men, it's testosterone. Now, we have both across the sexes, but the levels at which we have them varies. Now, if you look at humans, in particular women, who are considered the most attractive and the hottest across the top charts for the last 40, 50 years, the hottest celebrities have similar levels of estrogen and testosterone. It creates a more well-balanced, well-rounded, more appealing biological entity. To have it well balanced. But at puberty, I guarantee you they didn't have those same levels. The levels jumped all up and down, all over the place because of mental issues, because of stress, education, environmental factors, biological factors, right? Regardless of that, that's all biology that determines their efficacy and appeal and and procreation, right? Society is taking that attractiveness and conflated it into the social fabric. They've taken that one aspect of biology so far out of context and made it a measurement in the social fabric of success. They go, in order to be successful, you have to look a certain way, you have to fit a certain body type because that's going to appeal to more people. 
okay, that's the conflation of one aspect of biology into the social fabric. That doesn't make the rest of the social fabric. What's the word? Not con continent. Right? Just because you ground one aspect of the social fabric into a biologically, scientifically proven thing does not make the rest of the social fabric continent. It doesn't make it solid and impermeable and the best way to do things. That's the point of a social fabric is that when new trials and tribulations appear, it's adaptable. And the people that have the solutions come to the forefront in the social fabric and institute the solutions apply them, and then the fabric changes a little bit to adapt, right? The same way, biologically, humans are the most mentally elastic species on the planet. Our flexibility and adaptability to live in any number of environments outside of underwater and in space, which are two very, very different extremes, we're the most successful species. We're a level two on the food chain that functions as an apex predator. That's crazy. That comes from our, our elasticity. That comes from a human X factor. And that should be what you're nurturing across generations if you want to give your kids and your grandkids the best chance at dealing with problems that are going to come that you weren't able to even foresee. Right? People in the 40s and 30s had no idea about social media. And Facebook and mass company censorship. They never believed the company could get big enough to control the government. And that's literally what we're seeing today. And we're learning how to deal with it and cope with it. And we're learning how to try and right now struggling to take back the Fourth Amendment. But that's such an existential problem. In order to find a way grounded in the social fabric of society that society at large will agree on to change. You have to have people with that elasticity to go, this is this big, but this is how you solve it. This is the way through the fog. Follow me. This is the way you sail through this storm. Right? And no amount of work that our parents did was going to prepare us for what we have to deal with today. You and I are kids. We grew up playing Frogger. And Mario, the same way they did in the 80s, 70s and 80s. And we grew up on Halo and Call of Duty. We didn't have any concept of how metadata collection could be used. And now we're being forced to learn and adapt. And if more people out there had a higher ratio or percentage of mental elasticity, they could be more helpful and trying to problem solve it themselves. And so when they come to a collaboration table, they have a valuable or something that at least can be analyzed and broken down. But if you just stay in your dichotomy lane all your life until you're 18, you're going to waste more time as an adult unlearning how valuable that dichotomy isn't. You're going to waste time, brain, energy, space, that could be used for problem solving and planning out and trying to trailblaze. But instead, you're going to have to unlearn what? Let's take away the first five years. Let's say core memory function doesn't really start until five if we're going to be conservative. You're unlearning 13 years of a dichotomy that's been ingrained into you. 
only to learn that it's relative. How much time does that kid have to spend unlearning it? 13 years, this is the most important thing. This is how you view and interpret everything. Turn 18, oh, by the way, not true. Good luck. How is that more helpful to a society and a species at large? I'll just be turning my wheel saying the same thing I've always said <laughs> for the past. Fair enough. I mean, couple minutes. I mean, how is that helpful? I don't see how that gives more to the species. To conflate social fabric with one aspect of biology is flawed in and of itself as a principle of analysis. What you're saying. In essence, for me, how I understand it with my brain, is you're telling me that you tell somebody that there is these things called molecules, and every molecule is different. But they're molecules. So you make your decision off of what molecule you're going to be. Run that back again, I'm sorry. What sorry. you're saying is that you tell somebody you're a molecule. You decide which molecule you're going to be. You decide what, what element you're going to be of life. You just decide which one because everybody's different. Nobody's one way, nobody's another way. You just decide which one you're going to be. If a molecule had sentience, yes. If a molecule could decide how many... That's the messed up part. You're made of molecules. You're made of things. Right, that are... but our molecules aren't sentient onto themselves. If you break down the human body into molecules, Boy, that's you're not human. argument all in itself. But... If you're breaking down the okay. human body, you're breaking it down into just bits and pieces of the scientific okay, but let's talk about basis of the universe. You're not we're, talking we're about gonna, we're going away from created. We're going away from the personification yeah, and the metaphor. Sorry. But that's in my mind what you're saying. Okay. That's what you're telling me. You're not okay. telling me then I'm not communicating it in a clear enough way, I guess. You're you you're telling me that you're not gonna tell me that I'm a specific type of protons and a specific type of electrons. You're not telling me that I'm a specific way. And this is what you should be to be this. You're just telling me your element, your molecule, just be whatever you want. Just choose no, which one on the table you're gonna be. Oh my gosh. And that's what we're gonna say that like not, if you choose that you're gonna be no. hydrogen, this is how many no can't electrons Listen. and protons you're gonna have. This is how I feel. This, this so this I'm is what I'm saying. You let's let's stick with that analogy for a second. I'm saying rather than telling a kid this is the dichotomy and this is where you fit into it. And this is how you learn. These are things you should learn to do because they should define you, even though they don't define you yet because you haven't done them because you're a fucking kid. 
Wait, say that again? What? Say that, did you just say that again? What? Did, okay, hang on. That they don't define you because you are a... Because you haven't done them yet. Because you're a kid. Right, because well, you haven't a... done them yet, they, the masculine feminine can't define you. Your male female can define you, and if you're an outlier, like in some cases, you can be what's referred to medically as an intersex person, where you have the biological parts of a male and a female in some ratio. But I'm rather than telling the kid, here's a dichotomy, you tell the kid, here's the puzzle board. Here's how you solve this kind of problem. Here's how you solve this kind of problem. Here's how you solve this kind of problem. You can learn to provide for yourself by hunting and cooking your own food, or you can learn to provide for yourself by learning to cook food that you buy at the store. You don't have to understand hunting and how it works, but you should because it brings a more grounded understanding of your position in the world, and it gives you an appreciation. But that's an existential appreciation and if you invest enough in it, it'll provide for you in life. It won't just be a way to put food on the table. If you invest enough of your time in that particular way to solve that problem, yes, you can make a living out of it. You can become a game warden, become a hunting a hunting escort or a game land escort for a private for private land, whatever. Or you can learn to become a cook. And you can go into the service industry and be a line cook and work your way up to sous chef and executive chef. And you'll be cooking for other people and you'll be able to provide for yourself that way. But it's not a masculine feminine thing. It doesn't have to be that in order for your kid to understand the implications of investing in that skill. Probably not for cooking. Probably not for hunting. Not for cooking, not for hunting, not for writing laws, not for understanding economics. Sorry, guys. Hi, sweetheart. Yeah, I understand. I don't know what I'm going to hit. It's too much. It does. Are we back? We're back. All right, we're back. So, before we jump back into the nitty-gritty... Uh, we're going to go over this, the next beer on the list for tonight, which is the Mille Fleur. It's a rustic saison that's been dry hopped in a traditional farmhouse style. It's a blonde ale. It's brewed with fresh local peaches, vanilla beans, and a little bit of lactose in there to give it that uh, creaminess texture, since they call it the uh, peaches and cream saison, like a Peaches and cream sickle. Um, but that this one's also from Hall River. All the beers in that have been from Hall River. Um, we got a sponsorship, though? We no. need a sponsorship, though. Hall River, if you hear us, hit us up. Let us know. My sister got married out there. We had a great time out there at Hall River in uh, Saxpahaw County out in North Carolina. But um, this is another really good one. Very light in comparison to the other... Uh, two IPAs that we've had tonight. Um, this one in particular is a 
very, very good saison. They use fresh local peaches, as they said. And um, they just, this one's one of their more staple ones, that they don't mess with the recipe a whole lot. And in general, it's an easy drinking beer. The, the taste of it doesn't build up on your tongue, and it doesn't dwell very long. It balances well with most food pairings that you're going to eat. If you're eating spicy food, the fruity notes of it will go well with it. If you're eating savory food, it's not going to be super sweet like a dark stout would be, so it'll be more like a palate cleanser so you can keep enjoying the food. Um, but anyways, this is just generally a very good one. Again, it's called the Milthia. That's M-I-L-L-E-F-L-E-U-R. Also called the Peaches and Cream Saison. Um, and there are other ones out there. There are many like it, but this one is my favorite from Paul River. Sound like a line from Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> Just a little bit of a pop culture reference. <laughs> um, old school pop culture, I guess. No. We're technically old, right? Nah, bro. Nah, we're not technically old. Dude, if you're like, if you're, Dude, I've seen kids that I used to mentor walking around with like no clothes on. I feel old and awkward, weird. Nah, I just think, I just think everything's moving more rapidly. Maybe that's it. You, you just start to feel old sooner. I was born in '94, and I've seen Full Metal Jacket. That doesn't make me old. That makes me kind of like old man cultured. <laughs> you know, that's fair. People not a lot me. of children born in '94 like Full Metal Jacket the movie. You know? Yeah, that's they're true. Just, I'm, I'm a '93 kid myself. They don't. I watched it and I liked that. I thought it was a really good take on that issue. But um, yeah, I've always been told I'm just an old soul. But um, anyway, so getting back into the nitty and the gritty, maybe this analogy will work better. The analogy of a uh, Social fabric being a jigsaw puzzle, right? For society, both the social framework and the biological framework that builds humans into what they are and people into who they are functions more like a jigsaw puzzle. And so each piece fits in in a certain way, but many pieces are shaped the same. And so while they fit together in a certain way to create one picture, you could put them together in a different way by shape and still get a picture, just not a perfect picture, right? Not the picture on the box, if you will. That being said, social framework issues, social fabric issues like the masculine and feminine that we've applied to imperative tasks in my imperative tasks, I mean tasks that we have to do to survive, is an error in how we view the jigsaw puzzle and how we try to put it together. We're taking something from that's a biological thing and saying that it's a social thing when it's not, or vice versa. You're taking a, a social thing and saying it's a biological imperative when it's not, right? And I think that when we say you have to understand a dichotomy of male and female around ways of providing for ourselves, right? When, you when you're training your kid, grow up, how to take care of themselves, find something they want to do that they're good at, they can perform at, and be 
uh, respected in doing and provide for themselves and eventually provide for their family if, if they want. It doesn't have to come from a masculine female thing for me. Um, whether you're talking about cooking or being a lawyer or a doctor or a psychologist or a therapist or a farmer, a day laborer, a contractor, um, a fitness coach, right? It's not about masculine feminine. To some extent, it is about the biological, right? If you're in a field where the physical differences between male and woman determine how much they can or can't tolerate, that's something to take into account. You don't want to overstress the body and, and create a negative rubber band effect, right? You want a positive rubber band effect where they make a gain, right? Or where you're making a gain. But you don't have to have it set up as a masculine female thing specifically. As long as your kid understands the concept of it, right, and how it works for some people, that's good enough. That's perfect. They understand the dichotomy and that some people use it as their foundation and as their functionality, and they can understand that person who uses that in that way. That's good. That's solid. But your kid doesn't have to be beholden onto it for 13 years of their lives and then have to spend the rest of their life trying to unlearn that bias. Right? Yeah, of course. Teach them about the biological imperative difference. That's, I mean, school's going to do that. Right? Basic biology and anatomy and chemistry are going to give your kid those principles. Right? And if you're helping them with the homework, you know, obviously help reinforce that kind of thing. But... When you're talking about where you take a piss or where you take a shit, do you consider a unisex bathroom male or female? Do you consider any bathroom male or female beyond a sign on that bathroom? No, because you piss and shit the same way you would on any toilet. You know why it's important that we have separate bathrooms? And it really has nothing to do with girls going to one bathroom, boys going to another bathroom, having to be separate. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with biology. Alright, give me your take on it from the biological perspective of it. Because every freaking stall in the woman's bathroom is a sit-down stall. Men have stand-up stalls in their bathrooms because we can pee standing up. Women cannot pee standing up without making a mess. Okay. Here's your flaw in that. What's the flaw in that? Here's your flaw. My Men goodness. Men don't not... need stand-up urinals. No, we don't, but it's quicker. No, it's not. So not having a door is not quicker. You don't have to have a door. Oh my goodness. That's a privacy thing, sure. Don't get me wrong. Nobody, it's a thing that we're raised to understand. But I promise you, if you're out there in the woods, and. Yeah, but it's not about it whether matter. you need it or not. It's about whether or not. It's about desire and want, which is a social thing. Well, you can argue about the biological imperative of a desire, but the want is a social thing. The want for a privacy, the need for it, is something we're told that eventually will earn growing up. You earn your right to privacy. You don't have any privacy in your parents' house until they tell you you do. 
except in the bathroom. I don't even think it's that. I just think it's the fact that, like, you go in the bathroom, you pee standing up, you walk out. My point is, a dude can piss into the toilet, into a sit-down toilet, the same way. It's a a capitalism thing that says, buy these other urinals that are shaped differently, and you can fit more of them in, which means you have a higher capacity. Which means you're accommodating more people in your business, therefore you're more likely to have more people in your which business. Which makes a lot of sense. That's a capitalist social thing, not a biological thing. Which makes a lot of sense to me. I don't see why it doesn't. I mean, it's not a biological imperative, is what I'm saying. So then the way your toilet is shaped is okay, not so a biological imperative. So, huh. It's not a biological it's, imperative. It kind of is. Kind of not. Because you because can't have a woman go into a male bathroom and use a stand-up urine. Sure she can. If she's tall enough. I'm officially done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm officially done. I'm I mean, done again, you might want to put a door on that stall if you're a lady, right? Because men urinals are just separated typically by a divider or it's a piss shop. You can't... <laughs> Can't be. Oh man! You ever seen I'm those? Done. You ever seen those no. kid level urinals? You don't think lady can drop trial and pop a squat, dude? You can, but then you can. Then it's not a biological imperative. If you can do it, if you can mimic it, if you can embody it across it's not only about, male and female, it's, on, it's not only about doing it. You can do it, but can you do it? Safely and cleanly, you can. Ah. So I'm not saying that. No bathroom is safe and cleanly. Oh man. Man, you brought it up. You know, you brought it up with your qualifier, and I'm here to tell you that qualifier is also bullshit, and you know it too. Sanitation is never guaranteed. That's why you always wash your hands. Yeah, but we're talking about. You're talking about no bathroom is cleanly. None of them are. Because you have to touch everything. They're all yeah, filthy because but, some people don't wash their hands. And yeah, they're all filthy in general. Woman, you go to the bathroom, you sit down, you don't have you have the option of not touching the toilet or touching the toilet. If you pee standing up as a woman, you have to touch the toilet. It's a no brand. And you go you to the bathroom. Six foot woman. Bro, I don't Maybe the girl knows only two, three feet off the ground. Okay, I'm gonna ask your. I'm gonna ask your wife. I'm gonna ask your wife if she's ever peed up standing up without making a mess. How many guys pee standing up and still make a mess? That's not the point, though. Most. That's not the point. Every guy's made a mess peeing standing up at some point. What is the point? I mean, you put in these qualifiers that exist on both sides of the dichotomy. Right. It's a masculine-feminine thing, not a biological thing. The way a toilet is structured is commercially based. You don't For have a specific to have, reason. You don't have to have a standing urinal. You can have a sit-down or more sit-down toilets, or you can have a piss truck. You don't need to, you don't need an individual standing urinal for men. Look, if men could poop standing up too, there wouldn't have be no sit-down toilets in the male bathroom. That's a fact. And if you think if women could poop standing up, that there'd be sit-down toilets for pain? 
What? You just said that if guys could, if guys guys could standing poop, up, standing up, there would be no sit-down right. toilets. Ergo, because men can pee standing up, there are urinals versus sit-down toilets in a men's restroom. Mm-hmm. And I'm asking you if women could therefore poop standing up because a guy could, but they still had to pee sitting down. Would there still be sit-down toilets in a woman's restroom? Nigga, yeah, because yeah, they can't pee standing up. I don't get what you're saying. So how does that work? What do you mean, how does it work? I'm asking you to take your principles and apply them to an abstract process Bro, to determine whether or not they're man can pee from the front standing up. So if you can pee, if you can poop from the back standing up, then there will be no need for a sit-down <laughs> toilet. Podcasts will come about this and shit. In a man's <laughs> bathroom, bro. Because oh, it's officially late when we've come to this part of the conversation. There have been... There, oh, I don't get what you're saying to me right now. No. <laughs> no. Women need the sit-down toilet because they pee nimbus. sitting down. They pee sitting down. <laughs> and you poop sitting down. They do everything sitting down. They need the sit-down toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Men can pee oh, standing Jesus up, Christ. which most yes. times you don't. But you don't poop in public. To. Okay, let me let's rewind this back now that we put in some side rails that the trolley can't run on. Men don't have to pee standing up. They can, but it's actually better than the pee sitting down. Yeah, but regardless of sex or gender. Regardless of sex or gender, it's better for you to pee sitting down. Most people don't poop in public. So most of the men, so most of the argument about the male. So most of the men that go to the bathroom don't even use a sit-down toilet. Right, but they don't need a urinal to pee standing up. They can pee standing up into a sit-down toilet. Okay, I'm done with this point. Second point. <laughs> is if a woman oh, walks into a man's bathroom and she uses the toilet okay. and she has to get rid of her woman product, mm-hmm. there's no freaking thing on the side of the thing that you put your used tampons in like they have in a woman's bathroom. But if you had a unisex bathroom, they would put one in by necessity. Yeah, but I'm not talking about if there's a unit, what about dudes with him talking about? You, just, you gotta deal with that shit. Okay? That's what I'm saying. Like it's still like I'm, you're, you're women or the men product thing women, as being the problem. Women, and I'm telling you that the similar or problem men, exists across the male female dichotomy. Women or yeah. men with an with an extracurricular activity going on in their life, bro. We're already explicitly <laughs> labeled. Okay, you don't have to beat around the bush. Okay, that's why with most, anything that's extra, why most women just shade the bush. Okay? With anything extra going on in their life, they gotta make accommodations for themselves and plan out right. their day. Okay, and that's a bio- The bathroom is so put as a public resource. That means it operates at the simplest level. Mm-hmm. Women have periods, so they have little tiny trash cans inside their stalls. Men don't, so they don't. But maybe Simple. they should to accommodate men with hemorrhoids. Simple. But maybe they should. What are you doing? Pulling your hemorrhoids out of your butt and putting it in the trash can? No, I mean some some people just they they get aggravated and then there's bleeding. So you put your hemorrhoids in the in the trash can on the side of the thing. <laughs> you take your hemorrhoids to the front where you wash your hands and put it in the trash can. I don't, I don't understand know. what I don't you're saying. I don't know. 
I've never met anybody that's delivered hemorrhoids. So what do you mean? My that? point is, Cam. <laughs> sorry, dropping that government in. Point is, you are inputting these female imperatives as a biological female thing, but there are masculine or male equivalents that I'm pointing out, or specific examples I'm pointing out, that nullify the fact that it's a biological thing and more of a social fabric consequence. Yes, women have periods, men do not. Technically, men do have periods, but we don't have a bodily function that inhibits our day-to-day lives the way women do. That being said, there are some cases... Well, today men, you on your period because you acted difficult don't today. Don't make me <laughs> savvy. Jesus Christ. You asshole. <laughs> but I genuinely believe like, the bathroom thing is a social construct. Everybody pisses and shits the same color, nope. the same style. <laughs> nope. Yes. Men pissed in. <laughs> Bro. No, men piss standing up because it's convenient, but it's not better for us. <laughs> and we should not be accommodating something that is not good for us. Okay. You shouldn't. You shouldn't accommodate a bad habit. I'm sorry. Kick that shit. So how's peeing standing up worse than peeing sitting down? It's, I don't know it's this. It's harder obviously. on your internal organs. Why? Because they're all pushed down? It's harder on your kidneys versus when you're sitting down, your muscles relax, and you're not having to contract. And it's been shown that over time, you're less likely to develop kidney stones, and you're less likely to develop blockages. That's just... That's... Not my science. I didn't mm-hmm. do it. I mean, I didn't know anything about this, but it's the first time I'm hearing this. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a percentage of difference, right, for right. men, right? It's a percentage difference, but it's still measured and measurable, and yet we still enable something that's worse for us because it's a fucking social construct. And standing up urinals costs more to make in the mold. It's it's all a money thing. It's not it's not about functionality is what I'm saying. It's it's not. It's not a biological imperative for us to pee standing up. It's more convenient. It's a it's a masculine thing. It's convenience for men that happens to be per one to two percentage worse. I'm guesstimating that number because it's been forever since I read that study, but Yeah, but what if six men what if six women? Mm-hmm. That say that they're men walking to the men's bathroom that has three sit-down stalls and mm-hmm. three urinals. Mm-hmm. And then there's six men that say that they're men that walk into the men's bathroom. <laughs> we have a freaking problem. Because or across the hall, six because across stalls. the hall, there's six stalls in the women's bathroom. Or you that just are have stalls. Or you just have stalls. And yeah, but then you have a all. traffic problem because... The traffic problem is a capitalist problem not a biology problem and not a male female problem. No, actually, check it out because Okay. Oh, I'm listening, man. I'm listening, I'm listening, I'm, so listening. Much. I'm listening. If you think about the law of averages, bro, there's an equal <laughs> amount on average of women and men in any place at any time. So there's an equal amount of stalls in each bathroom, but they're all different. So if you have six women going into a six-stall bathroom where three of them are sit-downs, 
three of them in urinals, and you got six stalls across the hall in a women's bathroom and six men walking, you have a traffic issue because there's 12 people in a thing with six stalls and six women can only use three of them. So no, I, I can't, uh, I can't, I can't. It's just, you know, it's a lot of different issues. It's like, it's like. Right, but we're, we're looking at it specifically in the masculine, feminine, social fabric or social jigsaw puzzle lens versus the biology lens. And you don't biologically need to stand up and pee, especially when it's better for you to sit down. It's built that way out of convenience, not out of an imperative. And if it's a convenience, it is a social fabric construct. It is a social construct put there by yeah, but people. The, but the biology not, dictates that you can do what you can do and you can't do what you can't do. Okay. But that doesn't mean that it's better for you or that it's necessary. It's still a social construct for you to choose to do something that you don't have to do. It's a social construct through and through. Male stand-up urinals are a social thing. It's convenient for us, so we made it so. You don't think women would make it make it more convenient for them to have periods? That's why they have the boxes in the women's bathroom, bro. To the degree that men have done it. Jesus. If you don't think women overnight would wave a wand that says that they don't have the bleed and cramp every month? If it meant they couldn't have kids? No. I don't think they would. It's the only way you can have kids? Yeah, period. You get on birth control, you stop having periods regularly. It's still a social fabric thing. How? Because you don't have to not have kids. Right? Like, to, to not have kids is a personal choice or to have kids is a, is also a personal choice but conceiving kids is a biological choice uh-huh. right that's a biological act you're choosing to participate in with that goal in unless mind. you can't hold it <laughs> <laughs> you're going to hell sir i'm driving that bus i'm stopping by it's not a choice if you can't hold it Jesus, <laughs> we're not gonna give you that excuse. That's terrible. <laughs> That's fucked up. Uh, All right, y'all can laugh about that. Uh, fill the void. I gotta go grab the last beer and rinse these glasses out. Oh man, Jesus! Yeah. How do you come up with that one? Look, <laughs> you said it's fucking terrible. You uh, said it's fucking awful. You said this is what you said. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> oh man, you said it's a choice. <laughs> you said you choose to do that. Yeah, if you're, I mean, if, if you have a uh oh moment, for human, Jesus <laughs> Okay, so for humans, it is a biological choice because we can choose to ignore most of our imperatives, right? So what happened in the uh-oh moment? It was a biological No, tool. the uh-oh moment, the dude just didn't want to pull out. <laughs> and that's the dude's problem. 
Well, technically, if it results in a conception, it's See, both of y'all's problems. This is what, ooh, that is so dark. This is your cold brew coffee fix coming at you once again from Fall River. This dude has to get it perfect. Yeah, it bugs me. As a as a bartender, it bugs me when I pour two the same thing and it's not perfect. Like if a couple comes up to me at the bar, sidebar, sorry. No pun intended. If a couple comes up to me at the bar and they order the same drink, it is imperative that I give the exact right amount. Because if I give one, a little bit more in one glass to one person, then the partner, the other partner who received the less full glass inevitably makes a fucking comment and it bugs the shit out of me. Mostly because I hate stupid jokes like that. So... Coming at you from Hall River once again. Out of uh, Saxbaha County in North Carolina, we have the Java Lantern. This is their coffee cream stout, specifically. Not everybody gets the coffee stout right. And they did from the big They didn't get it right. Me. Okay. So this is their uh, seasonal release for October, which is the pumpkin month, as many of you know. And instead of crappy pumpkin spice lattes that don't actually have pumpkin in them, we're actually drinking a. Coffee pumpkin beer, I believe. It's a milk stout brewed with fresh pumpkin, a little bit of lactose, traditional seasonal, aka autumn spices for this time of year, for this season. And a Papua New Guinea Kanja coffee. Kanja coffee. That is all um, you, bro. <laughs> and to be fair, milk stouts are not the stouts for everybody, to be fair. They're thicker, they're... They're stronger, they stick to your tongue more, they coat the the mouth, your palate, your cheeks. They kind of have that, like, hugging onto your teeth feel. So they're not for everybody. But I'm a stout drinker year-round, ladies and gentlemen. I'm here to tell you, whoo. Now, I've not tried this one yet, but it smells amazing. I get all the autumn spices. I get a good amount of pumpkin. I actually don't get a lot of lactose in the nose. Mm. Oh my god, that's good. How do you not like that? Maybe it's just your glass. Easy. I tasted it and I was like, oh, that's nasty. Take a take a swig of it. Don't. So here's the thing about stouts that people, and in general with beer, different styles of beer, just like wine or whiskeys, right? They have to be tasted the way that they should be, right? So if you're drinking a smoky whiskey. There are certain parts of your tongue you want the whiskey to sit on because you're, unless you have a very refined or uh, practiced palate like a Cicerone or a Sauvignon does, or Somalia, sorry. Um, a Cabernet Sauvignon? Yeah. Well, Cab Sauvignon <laughs> are a really good blend. Anyways, uh, I meant to say Savant and Somalia, and the words got mixed in my head. Um, anyways. If you're a Cicero sommelier, it doesn't really matter where the taste lands. You're gonna you're gonna have the training to understand, and you'll take two or three sips to really get a general feel of it, right? Um, but for your average drinker who's like branching out, right? Like let's say you're a beer drinker and you drink IPAs and pale ales traditionally. Yeah, stouts 
probably not going to taste very good the first two to three sips of it that you have because it's such a contrast. And that's to why your I took palate. four sips and I still didn't like it. Now, then, now again, here's what the thing about a stout is that it takes an extra second or two for all the flavors to hit because it's so dense and dark and rich. And it takes a little bit more time for it to develop, unless it's like a dry stout, right? And there's a difference between a dry and a wet stout and the, the mouth feel and how thick it, it feels kind of in your tongue. Um, but anyway, so on this stout, it's as a milk stout, it's going to take a little bit more because the lactose is going to change a little bit of that flavor composite versus that initial sip, which is like really like pumpkin-y and like coffee. The lactose is going to bring out that sweet autumn spice. But this is why you also smell stuff before you taste it. Because when you smell it, you're giving yourself a chance of precognition to understand. This is what I should be looking for, right? In terms of how smell correlates to taste. You're going, this is the kind of stuff I'm smelling. This is, it should taste similarly to this. If not, if it doesn't taste like that, why doesn't it taste like that? Like a dog, though. a little more time. Like a what? Like a doggo. Like a doggo? Like a doggo. What's a doggo? <laughs> He's making a joke, folks, now I don't get it. Mmm. How is it? It's better when you don't let it touch your tongue. <laughs> <laughs> no, the point is that it washes over your tongue and then it kind of brightens as it sits. Like the autumn spices come out a little bit more. As it it brightens as I didn't taste it. Jesus Christ. This <laughs> man. Okay, so clearly <laughs> Nimbus does not like pumpkin milk stuff, which is fine. That just means he's not a basic white girl drinking beer. <laughs> Sorry, white girls. Who go to Starbucks and wear Uggs and North, North Face jackets? Is that what it is? Is it North I think it's North Face. Patagonia jackets. The, it's Patagonia those jackets vest. when they first came out, kids were getting stabbed and killed for them in malls. Yeah, that was definitely North Face. Yeah, that was North Face. Good job, North Face. Great <laughs> contribution to society. Um, not the gold chains were much better, but um, the way Otis Redding did it back in the day, that was a positive. The new gold chains, probably not so much. I like gold chains. I'm not a huge fan of gold. I like, like, white gold and silver. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do actually really like rose gold with some certain gemstones, like green, mm-hmm. emeralds, or blues. It, it accents very nicely. Red, not so much. I mean, the red kind of brings out the rose gold, but if you're wearing a gemstone, you want the gemstone to shine, not the metal. So. Nah, bro, if I get a chain, I'm going to get a gold chain. Nah, I got to get that sterling silver sun. Or that platinum. You know, mm-hmm. if you got that kind of money, get that platinum chain. Sitting here to talk about chains, I need one chain. I need a chain. I have a stainless I need steel one ball of these. chain for my cross and my uh, Celtic ring that my wife gave me back in high school. I need one and of these chain makers to sponsor the podcast. Give me a gold chain. Bro, there know. were some handcrafted inch by inch link chains at I the state fair this Cuban year. I need those Cuban link chains. Bro, they were so expensive. I was like, yeah, I want one. Ooh, nope, not not for that price. How much were they? The the shorter ones with the thinner thinner metal were still like anywhere, because you could get bracelets which were only like twenty five or whatever. Yeah. But like your neck ones would go would start at around fifty. 
like forty to fifty. But it it Those went are not out. <laughs> no, that's for like the silver. The gold ones were like closer to the hundreds. Um, mm. But again, also that the amount of gold you're using in it, it affects the price. If it's ten k gold or fourteen or twenty four or whatever, yeah. The gold, the amount of gold ratio in the metal used, obviously, is what we're talking about when we talk about the carats of a metal. Um, but anyways, but um, they had a wide range. But I was just like, I have a stainless steel chain that I don't have to detarnish and take to get clean. I've had this chain for this since high school, and it's still stainless. No stains, no rust, even on the on the steel cord that links the, the steel stainless steel ball. So I'm not complaining about it. It works fabulously. Um, anyways. Yeah, the uh, milk style is probably just not for you, honestly. Um, I think you've tried Dragon's milk style, and I don't think you liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you also tried the Cherry Age Dragon Milk Stout that I brought, which was really good. Um, and I think you liked it because the cherry cut it out, or cut out that, like, rough stoutness. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the pumpkin more, like, accents it with the autumn spices. It more, like, enriches the stoutness, which is probably what you are jerking away from which a lot of people do it's not funny because i like guinness so yeah well guinness is um a nitro style which is slightly different in that technically i would consider it a dry style Mm -hmm. and so it's not going to have that same it's not going to have lactose in it like a milk stout would and it's not going to stick to your mouth the way a milk stout does Mm. it's more of a dry light easy drinking it tastes the same at the beginning as it does at the end, room temperature or cold kind of thing, mm-hmm. which is good. I mean, that's what you want in a beer like a Guinness. Um, the stouts out there that taste the same at the beginning as they do at the end, those are very few and far between. That's a sign of a really good stout. That it, it's no matter the temperature, if it's room temp, cold, beginning of the pint, middle, bottom, it tastes the same. That is a beer that has been very meticulously crafted, and that is a good sign of a good quality product. So enjoy it when you find it. Again, shout out to Hall River where my sister got married. I'm a, I'm gonna drag your sorry ass out there one day, all the way to Saks Baha. I'm gonna wear my cowboy boots and everything. What if I'm not sorry? What if I'm, I'm just I'm happy? You are sorry. Well, you're probably not that sorry. You did like three of the four beers that I brought. <laughs> From them, so <laughs> I'm just gonna drag you out to the river, bro. Not in a bad way. Jesus, that sounded terrible. <laughs> if they find my body, you know where I'm at. Somebody uh, out there make a uh, edit of that soundbite and just start playing Strange Fruit um, by Nina Simone in the background. Strange Fruit. Oh man. We've only we've almost been going for three hours. That's not how that tune goes, but we don't want to get copyrighted, so. Yeah. Bro, people that own the rights to dead musician stuff are fierce. Yeah. They're relentless. Yeah. Like, um, Jimmy, I'm wearing a Jimi Hendrix shirt right now um, from his Monterey show, I believe. I think it's his Monterey show. Um, is that Monterey? 
So the Hollywood, California. Hollywood, California. Sorry, not Monterey. Um. Anyways, when he passed, his sister inherited all of his musical rights. And of course, rightfully so, she blamed the music industry here in the States for his downfall, which it was. If you look into the history of it, um, he had a, he, like many other artists, had a tortured past with drug addiction and alcohol. And so he went off to Europe to get clean and he got clean and he was writing music and he was living a good life. And one of his friends convinced him to come back and record here in the States on like one piece. And, um, it took him like a month or so, and in that one month, they, the people around his friend, who were, of course, peddling drugs, giving him coke, LSD, other psychedelics, mushrooms, whatever, um, they roped him back into a relapse, and it ended up killing him. And so he became another victim of the Curse of 27, which is the the historical precedent in um, American music history where people who are considered genius level artists, Mm -hmm. right? Like end up dying at the age of 27. I want to say there's like 30 of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyways, that was what happened to poor Jimmy. And um, I got two years to start a music career. Yeah. Shit. Wait two years, <laughs> then you're golden. That's the lesson, kids. Wait till you're 28 so you avoid the curse. There you go. Just like stockpile your music in a safety deposit box. Don't release it. And then just go to a label and be like, boom, bitch, first seven albums. Give me my contract. Here's my SoundCloud. Yeah, don't put that shit on the cloud. The cloud just got ripped open in a cyber hack last month, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's another funny thing to talk about. Um, I know we've sidebarred and digressed, but so the cloud ish, the cloud servers have had a huge problem recently of being targets of cyber attacks because of their metadata. But interestingly enough, Amazon is actually contracted with the government to run a cloud operation for government intelligence, which explains why Jeff Bezos is worth so much goddamn money. And, and why, why he cheated. <laughs> and why the government is not going to put in antitrust laws against his company. He's going to continue continue to get 20% of the cyber market annually because he literally holds the keys to their intelligent data. That's brilliant. Good job, America. So proud. <laughs> All right, dude. Let's wrap it up. You want to wrap it up? All right, boys and girls, lads, ladies, gents. We do this podcast at like 15 hours in the middle of the night. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I said 15 hours. That's how late it is, folks. Coming at you live. 15 hours in the middle of the night. <laughs> oh. um, once again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us on whatever podcast platform you're picking us up on. Um, you can... Find us on Google Play, um, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and hopefully soon here we'll be on other major, uh, the rest of the major podcast platforms. This has been the One Eye Gambler and Nimbus the AP. Don't worry about the AP. You don't want to know what it's for. Catch you guys later. Peace. Peace.